0: Have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Hey everybody, Flynn here, your favorite podcasting wrestler, actor, whatever you want to call me, your host of this show. And before we get started on today's episode, I just want to take a minute and wish you all a happy, happy holiday. And for those of you that celebrate a very Merry Christmas, and I hope you'll treat this episode as an early Christmas gift. But before we get started on today's episode, I do want to take a minute and thank everyone for all the continued support you guys have given me this year. And trust me, Things are getting crazy on my end, but we're still going to bring you some good quality content every week. We're also going to be moving some things to Wednesdays. So every other Wednesday now, you're going to get Tales from the Haunt. And then after that, on the in-between weeks, you're going to be getting a real-life look into my life. You're going to find out what really goes on in my head up there in something that we're calling the Flynn Hendricks Experience. Maybe the name of my finishing move, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, guys, before I derail this too much, there is a lot of stuff coming in the next year. Big guests, new content, new schedule. Things are picking up everywhere, and we are going to continue to deliver some quality audio content. But before I ramble on way too much, which I already have, but I get paid to talk anyway. Yeah, it, look, I've, I've derailed completely here. But I just want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a safe and happy holiday season. And before we get to today's episode, I'm going to throw it over to Jeff because I think he's got something that he wants
1: to say. Hey everybody, just Jeff here. For those of you who don't recognize my voice, I'm the guy in the background that Flynn would say is the one that does all the audio wizardry. I'm also the co-host and the audio wizardry guy for Tales from the Haunt. I just wanted to take a quick second to all of our listeners and say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from myself and the rest of the team at Flynn Hendricks Enterprises. With that being said, let's dive right into this week's episode of I know you hear me with Flynn Hendricks.
0: everybody, welcome back to another exciting episode of the I Know You Hear Me podcast. At a time when I'm getting ready to go back into the real world, into the corporate world, as this is recording, when this airs, who knows where I'll be at that point, but we'll still be having some fun, but we're live in studio here tonight, I got Jeff over here working his wizardry on the keyboard, he knows what he's doing to make this sound pretty, and I've got a special guest in studio with us, caught him passing through Nashville, and this is one that... You'll know him when I introduce him, because you've heard me reference him and sing his praises several times. But before we get to him, I want to make sure that this podcast is finding everybody in a great place. Hope you're having a good day so far. And I gotta ask, is this your first episode? Or have you been listening for a while and just not subscribed yet? Because if you haven't subscribed yet, or this is your first episode... You picked a great one to start with, but I need you to go back in the archives, hit that subscribe button, and dive in headfirst to all the content I've got waiting for you. You like voice acting, you like wrestling, entrepreneurial endeavors, you name it, I've got it, I've got chats with some big name people, and the material is right there waiting on you. And do you like all things spooky? Because i got a podcast there for you too, and Jeff knows all about that. It was his idea, so now we got Tales from the Haunt. Got two podcasts here waiting for you. They're both available on all podcasting platforms. And you need to go hit that subscribe button, leave that five-star review, and get that word of mouth and share, share, share. And, Jeff, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but you know what's coming next. We've got merch. We've got shirts. I've got them available at conventions I go to. We've got 8x10s. You name it, I've got it. We'll ship to you. I've even got a Pro Wrestling t store. Check the show notes. Because if you want to support this podcast and keep it going... That's the best way to do it. And here's a better part, too. Once you do it, once you get that merch, take a picture, tag us, we'll give you a shout-out on social media and on the podcast, and then you'll know, too, that a portion of every sale is going to go to your choice of either the Peter Mayhew Foundation or the Nashville Humane Society. So everybody wins. That sounds like a win, doesn't it, Jeff? Yep. Yep, and he's giving the thumbs-up, too, so that's a double win in my book. All right, ladies and gentlemen. This is one I have been waiting to happen for a long time, and I'm glad that we actually were able to connect and make this happen in person, because like I said a few moments ago, this guy is live in studio by way of Chicago, Illinois. I'm used to seeing this guy behind a computer screen via Zoom. We have performed, uh, this guy has taught our improv group so much over the last two years, which is insane to say that it's been that long, but... My God, this guy has taught me so much, not only in acting, but in life as well. It is my pleasure to have on the podcast improv actor extraordinaire Jonathan Pitts.
2: Hi, Chris. It's so nice to see you in person as opposed to on a screen. I know. But after that good of an introduction, I want to like make some sort of self-deprecating joke, and I got nothing in the moment. Well, you didn't bring a monkey with you, so that... No, did not bring, your case. Nope, didn't bring a monkey, uh, uh, you know, or else the the obvious joke, which is why I didn't want to do it. It's like, oh, great. Thanks. And who are you? You know, that would have been that would have been the hack joke. So I didn't of want to course. do that. But it's so great to see you. It's so great to see this room. Oh, thank that I've only seen on line and to be able to see you in person. You know you're, I know, you're vibrant on the camera, but you're really especially vibrant in 3D.
0: Oh, it's just my red shirt. But thank you for saying that. <laughs>
2: That'll work, yeah.
0: Oh, man. So it's it's crazy that we were able to connect and make this happen because like you messaged me and said, hey, I'm going to be passing through Nashville. Can we do the podcast live? How do I say no to that?
2: I don't know, but you didn't, and I'm grateful for it because I, I thought it'd be a lot more fun to do it in the studio with you.
0: Absolutely.
2: And either glance over at you uh, now and then when I'm not talking in the microphone right, or be right. able to <laughs> look at you for a second because uh, I feel like that always makes for a better Podcasts being able to see the people in person, of course, you know, which uh, uh, is what how a lot of podcasts were pre-COVID.
0: No, oh, we're still in the dark times.
2: Yeah, which,
0: like I said, two years. Like we're over two years at this point. How does that two even, and even half happen? Years. That's just that, again, time has no meaning at this point. Right. But the silver lining of it was all these classes I got to start taking and. Our, our foundation of friends here, you know, like Jen, Katrina, previous guests on this show, and so many others, we're like a family now, all because of COVID and a computer screen.
2: Right, which was not the case uh, pre-COVID. There's, there were a lot of people that uh, discovered improvisation and probably voiceover stuff um, during COVID because of being able to do it on Zoom. You Absolutely. Know, I know people that Zoom improv is doing Zoom... Style improv has been very good for people who live far away from cities that have scenes so that it makes it hard for them to get there. Uh, also, it's been very positive for people who may have some sort of physical disability of mm-hmm. some sort, or some you know uh, some sort of deep introversion that would make it easier or more comfortable for them to do it from their home rather than in person. And you know, so there's different what's happened online with Zoom for improv is it's really opened up the doors. To a lot of people whom doing it in person, live in person, 3D, would not be as accessible to them. It's also been pretty amazing to see that people are uh, meeting each other all over the world and doing improv, whereas normally they'd have to go to a festival, which is pretty cost prohibitive unless you're being brought out by the festival. And so there's been a lot of things that have come out of it. But I'm also seeing that now that shows are starting to go live again, they've been live in Europe for about six months, but now that the shows are going live again here in some of the main parts of the united states mm-hmm. that it seems to be having an effect on the zoom attendance certainly it's had a huge drastic effect on the people watching zoom right uh, but it does seem that there will be people there will always be s- some people doing zoom online because they actually prefer it and so that is never going to go away Absolutely. and i also think that like doing voiceover classes through improvisation will probably stay online because otherwise you're stuck having to find an improv class in the city that you live in when most of the people that do voiceover work already seem much more comfortable being in their home studios doing that work. They're used to it, so it doesn't feel out of place to them, whereas the average improviser who's just trying to do improv and not be a voiceover actor, it's all about the eye contact and the physical energy that you read and give and share off Mm -hmm. each other. Uh, and, and that's a different type of connection. Whereas again, like I said, everybody who does voiceover work or predominantly podcast work, you're already used to just working in your closet, your spare room, your garage, wherever you set up your own
0: Absolutely. studio,
2: like what you have here.
0: I mean, that's, that's it. And I truth be told, that's the dream working out of that thing and making a living doing it. But like you said, with improv too, it's, you gotta have that connection too. it. It's like wrestling. You can't just wrestle over Zoom. You you know I don't know how that would work, but
2: (laughs) yeah, I would imagine there wasn't a lot of Zoom wrestling going on.
0: Yeah, a lot of you know if that happened, I'd have to pay a couple visits to the Apple Store, and I don't want to do that. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's it's all about that energy too, and like with you being a world traveled, uh, you know, improv actor, what was it like when COVID hit? Because obviously, like you've been to the Philippines, you've been to Europe. What was it like having to go from those in-person interactions to doing it behind the computer screen? Uh,
2: well, just to let everyone know who's listening, um, uh, I was did what I called a global improv walkabout tour for two and a half years leading up to COVID, and I, in those two and a half years, taught and performed in twenty-five countries and sixty-one cities. And friends of mine would ask, how long are you going to keep doing this? And I would say, well, at some point, the universe is going to let me know it's time to stop. Right. So I think we can blame me for COVID. <sighs> so
0: we found the reason. Because Not the universe the
2: said, no, it's time to stop.
0: Apparently my dog said no, too, Yeah, anybody here's that in
2: the background. The dog is supporting that by <laughs> saying, yes, the universe said no. And so uh, it came to a dead halt for me. Just uh, uh, I ended up having a period of time where like eight months I didn't make a penny. You know, from uh, because everything I was doing was online, and I had, uh, for 2020, I already had seven international gigs lined up, and of course, they all went away. Mm. And, you know, normally when I'm traveling, uh, unlike going to conventions like what you did, normally when I'm traveling, um, other gigs come to me. Like, I'll meet somebody and they'll be like, oh, can you come here? Can you come? So, the gigs create other gigs. So, even though I had seven gigs, which was a lot lined up for 2020, I was going to have a lot more. And that all came to a screeching, screeching halt. And when I first looked at improv on Zoom, I was not comfortable with it. Right. I think predominantly because a lot of people were doing, were still trying to do it as if it was live in the theater.
0: Yeah. That'd be a problem.
2: Um, so what I was seeing in the beginning was a lot of Zoom improv that was looked like the people were trying to make it just like it was being live. And mm-hmm. I understood why they wanted to do it that way. But Zoom being such a different medium, it just didn't play that well to me watching it. And uh, so I didn't want to get involved in it until uh, after about six months, I saw some Zoom work being done by my friends in the Manila, Philippines, and also my friends in uh, Bangalore, India, and they were really experimenting with the zoom techniques and the zoom possibilities and the camera work and the framing and the spacing, And, and it showed me, oh, this is what you can do, rather than just having everybody stay in their same square facing front, and then it's when I went, okay, I can see how I can operate within this, and that started helping me Figure out how to begin teaching with that, and that also, you know, I'm gra- very grateful to uh, Chuck Huber because oh, yeah. he was teaching, and now and then he'd say, "Hey, do you want to teach an improv class tonight for the night?" And I would, and then that's when I started exploring or seeing w- what I could do as an improv teacher on Zoom, using those other methods, and including, like, you know, one of the things that's tough is on Zoom you can't make eye contact. <clears throat> right you know and in fact on zoom you can't really read people's eyes at all so you have to take all your cues from the rest of their face whereas normally in person you see the person's eyes and you get so much from that but you know here you just have to sort of ignore it and then look at everything that the rest of their face is doing and their body's doing so I was doing that for a little bit and then uh, uh, for a period of time Chuck was considering putting together a online academy and So he started recommending me to people to teach, and I ended up coming up with three different classes, of which you were in the very first one. Oh, yeah. And then I had two others that existed for periods of time. But there was something about your class that just really took off, because here it is two years later, and everybody in your group is basically still together, even though we took a break for the summer. Whereas the other two classes, one existed for, like, two terms, the other existed for four terms, and then everybody felt like they learned what they were going to learn. And then... uh, Things changed with the capacity about uh, Chuck's interest and availability, being able to do the online academy, so that Mm kind of went away. Uh, And then some other people were exploring doing something like that, so those are in different stages of possibilities, or up in the air or delayed. Um, But I do know that I want to work with more voiceover actors, because what I find really interesting about working with voiceover actors is that they are... Learning improvisation as mm-hmm. a tool to add to their tool belt to get them more work rather than it being an entry point into the entertainment industry or the process to get them on a second city stage or to, you know, end up at SNL or BuzzFeed or something like that. And so instead of people looking at it as a route to get to the end, uh, it's really interesting working with people who just want it to be something that makes them better at this other thing that they want to do. And I feel like any form of acting training, including voiceover work, is like different engines of a car. Absolutely. And that improv is the oil that makes that machinery move smoothly.
0: Very, I mean, it's very true. And truth be told, like, I, I don't know if I'm a unicorn at that point, but obviously I wanted improv to help me become a better actor. But of course, too, I don't want to just... I, I love voiceover. It's it's easier to do because you have mentioned the booth right here behind you. But the on-stage performances, the live performances, being able to act and then have improv under your tool belt to just have these different reactions that may not be expected. That's something that I want to have more of here, too. But it's kind of like I'm in a limited area, so I'm using it in the wrestling, you know, scope Which of things. Which makes right perfect now.
2: sense because you still uh, it's how you sell the moves, whether yep. or not you're making them or receiving them. And then also it's how you interact with the audience. Absolutely. And 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 that's where the improvisation makes it easier because again you know all the moves but being able to do more with your acting is like oil like i I just keep going back to you know uh unless somebody wants to marry on standard live those are the people that mainly want to learn improvisation for leading it to something else everyone else it just becomes oil to make all the mechanism the engine of whatever it is they're learning about acting just go more smoothly absolutely and, and you know and when you're dealing with an audience there is no fourth wall in wrestling that's true and so you know they see you you see them they're interacting with you they're not or and if they're not interacting with you you know there's something wrong yeah
0: you got a problem with that point right Ooh. yeah
2: and uh and so you know knowing how to read an audience how to interact with the audience how to get them out further you know being able to but you know the most common phrase in improv is just stand. And I would think that part of it would be if you see, oh, I did this, and now the audience is having this kind of reaction, so I'm going to yes-hand it and do it a second time, or I'm going to do it even larger, Uh and that's going to bring out more from them. So it's like you know, learning how to not only make your wrestling partner your partner, but also the audience your partner. Absolutely. You know, your scene partner. And also the referees. Yes. Because, you know... Uh, they have to be helped out as well, and part of it, even if they do have to learn it sloppy instead of clean. Uh, so they, they have
0: to look official and they have make to look they know official. what they're
2: doing. Yes. And so there's a lot to pay attention to. Uh, I, I, I know somebody who uh, loves wrestling as much as he loves improv, and he always said that he felt like there was a huge similarity between wrestling matches and improv shows. And he's also somebody who's like a huge fan of. Uh, CM Punk
0: Yeah Straight out of Chicago Yeah Right
2: Yeah So uh, He was more drawn towards that Than like The WWE He was drawn towards Sort of the alternative Style of wrestling
0: Are you able to say his name By chance
2: Uh, His name is Brian Woe
0: Okay I think I've heard that name But I was actually thinking About somebody else Uh that's a, a Chicago-based comedian that's intertwined in the wrestling world. The yeah, there's a guy the named, if I
2: remember correctly, there's a guy named Nick Armstrong. Yes. Who came out of, uh, came out of doing improv in college. And uh, I first met him because he was in our college improv tournament. Because I created a college improv tournament that had Ooh, like nice. 120 teams around the country. We'd have 10 to 12 regionals, then have regional winners, and then have the nationals. And uh, he was on a team from Columbia College. And then also I think one year we had him be like an MC. Oh, wow. And then he went off in a different direction and got involved with wrestling. Okay. And then if I remember correctly, he either became an announcer or a ref or both.
0: I'm trying to think. I'll have to, I, now that I'm on the spot, I can't think of what I'm familiar with on him, but it'll come to me. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. And
2: also now that I've said it, I don't think that his name is Nick Armstrong. That's another improviser. <laughs> um, but his name was Nick, this guy from Chicago. Um but I don't remember his last name because I'm pretty sure the other guy I'm thinking about runs some um, improv camps.
0: Well, Nick just got some free plug anyway, so yes, that's, that's a win in my book. <laughs> there you go.
2: But, so who, who was it you were thinking of? A um, uh,
0: comedian named Marty DeRosa.
2: Oh, that was the other person I was going
0: to mention. Okay, well, well, yeah, future I
2: guest on the show. Uh, yeah, because Marty DeRosa, uh, I ran the Chicago Podcast Festival for four years. Okay. And Marty w- did one or two years uh, of the festival with his show,
0: yeah, and I think um, I know he and was it's in... like
2: love and wrestling, or yes, love yes. and wrestling. Yeah,
0: yeah, he was. Uh, it, it was always funny too. A, the first wrestling podcast I ever heard was from another Chicago-based wrestler uh, named Colt Cabana. Like I, I've seen yes. pictures of the billboards that he's got up around there. But he would occasionally pop up on that show, or he would do the live shows with him, and just the humor and the comedy that he brought to it, just so off the cuff, was just it was a breath of fresh air every time that podcast would come on because it's not just straight wrestler interviews. Right. There's comedy. Right. There's humor. and
2: Yeah, the second year that uh, Marty did it, Col- his guest was Colt Cabana. Yep. So Colt was uh, in it for one year of uh, the Chicago Podcast. So, and looking up on Facebook, I can tell you Nick Armstrong is not the guy that I was thinking of. He is indeed the guy who runs uh, Improv Utopia, but there's a different Nick who left uh, the com- Chicago comedy world and became a involved in wrestling. So we'll still
0: look up Nick Armstrong for the improv utopia. There's right. that free plug. Right.
2: Uh but yes, yeah, so we did have Marty Derosa and I did have Colt Combana, you know, nice. at the Chicago Podcast yeah. Festival during our uh in, in our venue that was for Chicago podcast only.
0: Very nice. And it's funny how it all comes back to wrestling. But I don't I don't want to make it all about wrestling. I wanna know more about you because Acting and performing has been in your family's background. Yes, so you So, you know, you're you're second generation. Yep. What was that like growing up and then maintaining that love of performing, acting, and improv? Like, after being around it your entire life, how did you not get burned out on that?
2: Well, um, let's see. So, first of all, I do want to say I was a wrestler in high school. Oh, really? So, So you you could take me then. No. (laughs) um, uh, I joined in my sophomore year and quickly found out that most people that were good at wrestling come from families of wrestlers mm-hmm. or their older brothers were wrestlers. Oh, so yeah. most people were doing it since fourth or fifth grade. And for me to try and start learning it in sophomore year, I was like way behind. Yep. So I was uh, uh, I did it for all th- three years, but I was never a good wrestler in high school. Um, I was like the 105 category weight, then 112, Man. then my senior year I was 119. Um, and anyone's listening, I'm 185 now. So, but He's at uh, the weight I need to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I looked at, you know, uh, I was not a good wrestler, but I was drawn towards it. And, you know, probably the most fun that I would have is after or before the wrestling, actual wrestling practice, when we'd have time to goof around and we'd goof around and do fake wrestling.
0: Ah, oh, it's the best. Yeah, and I think uh, that's the funny thing too is uh like obviously like someone like South Park has made fun of it, but so many people would go and sign up for you know the legitimate amateur wrestling, thinking they were going to be doing the WWE stuff, and, right. and Are severely disappointed, but some of them stick it out and they become like legitimate monsters on the mat too, and then some of them still go on to become professional wrestlers after that, and those were some of the most fun people to actually just get in the ring and play around and have fun with, but. It's funny how so many people started off because they thought they were going to go in there and do stunners or leg drops or whatever it was and then learning up how to actually hook somebody's arm and possibly break it.
2: Right. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, I once had a tooth knocked out in wrestling Ooh, practice. Oh, man. Uh, Instead, I then just pushed it back in.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to uh, to fight that adrenaline rush when that's happening because I've broken a finger doing that, uh, dislocated a toe doing that, and then you just... You don't think about it, you just pop and go, and it's just because if you think about it, that's when the pain sets in.
2: Right, right. Oh man. Yeah.
0: But so you did that, but was that? So not yes, like I in did a... that
2: in high school. Now, uh, what Chris is referring to, the people who are listening, is that uh, my father was a professional entertainer, a professional, a little, a little, a professional entertainer with ice capades. and he did that for about fifteen years, and he was one of the comedy acts, and it was him and an ice skating chimp. And over the years, he had like four or five different chimps. Um, The first two years, two and a half years of my life was my mom, my dad, me, and Spanky the Chimp living in a trailer home traveling across America. Oh, man. Um, After that, you know, my parents got divorced and... My dad went to L.A. with Spanky, and my mom went to Chicago with me. It's up to you to figure out who got the better deal on that divorce. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and then after that, I would see my dad like one day a year when Ice Capades came to town. So uh, my awareness of him as a performer, being around him, is when I would go visit him. Or if when Ice Capades was coming to town, he would be on the commercials. Yeah. So I would see my dad on TV, on commercials. He also did interviews and was on different talk shows, well, him and the chimp. Uh, and so a lot of my experience of my dad growing up was of like this distant father figure who was a celebrity. You know, uh, I, I kind of felt more like, uh, what's his name, living on Tatooine planet. Oh, stuff. Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker yeah. living on this deserted planet while, you know, uh, the more famous people are in your life are off doing other things. Right, right. Um, you know, growing up, you know, I did have some resentment about my dad. And so I didn't ice skate. That was like, I was like, every all my friends knew that I grew up, you know, my dad is a professional ice yeah. skater. And so I wouldn't ice skate, which is probably for the best because one of my two legs is bow legged. Oh. Which makes skating difficult. I would uh, imagine so. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I was like, I was like a rebel without a skate. <laughs> Fuck you, dad. I'm not going to ride. <laughs> I'm not going to ice skate. Screw you. I'm not gonna get a monkey either, so. Oh,
0: the monkey uh, though—that's not getting the monkey. May, oh man, I feel like if you would have gotten the monkey, that would have been the ultimate middle finger. But
2: right, uh, and you know, later on as as adults, my father and I became friendly predominantly through performing because right. not that I performed with him, but uh, all the things that I've done performing wise, he could relate to because he traveled around the world with ice capades. Absolutely. So when we connected as adults. Rather than as kids, when I was a kid and he was an adult, when we connected when I was grown up, it was through the mutual love of performing than it was anything else. Because, kind of like, whatever he owes me as a child, he can never repay. Right. But as an adult, he owes me nothing, right. is how I look at it. You know, and so he's my father, but I experience him almost more like an uncle. You I do. You know, gotcha. like an uncle who does a similar kind of profession. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I know that he was. Uh, express points where he was being very proud of me which was lovely to hear but as an adult it didn't have the same right, right. effect you know like understandable uh, you know like just earlier today your dog was barking and your son got a little scared and you went off to go be there and have and see what was going on I have never had that happen in my life I well, I've had dogs bark at me yes right right <laughs> as we all have right and you know if i if I got scared I would go to my mom but th- that a lot of the stuff that people think about with fathers and sons, like none of that happened. Yeah. Whereas, like as an adult, we can talk about what it's like to travel to Europe. You know, what it's like to travel to. I've ended up now traveling to more countries than he's been to. You know, and I'm so sure that,
0: that had to be a proud thing for him too, yes, to see like the legacy yeah. carried on. Yeah.
2: And uh, and as such, you know, he's there's a movie that's been filmed about his life, an incident based on his life. And um, I was able to get him interviewed by the movie's producers and uh, get him paid for it. They didn't need the rights to his life because there was a book written about it and everybody in the book was under fake names. So they bought the royalties of the book so they didn't need to pay my dad or get the rights to him, his life rights. So I was able to, working with the movie producers, get him paid for doing like a two-hour interview where he lives in Argentina. Uh, Oh, I forgot. uh, See, I
0: forgot he lived down there. Yeah, he
2: lives in Argentina. He's not a Nazi. Just thought I'd let you know. (laughs) A lot of people retired. uh, You know, No, he's not a Nazi. He he retired down there because my half-sister from his third marriage, I'm from the first marriage, um, lives there with her husband who she met in college who is from Argentina. So uh, when he retired, he moved down there to be on the same block as her. And so we, the the movie producers had an Argentinian cameraman come in. They interviewed him via Zoom. I watched as well. And so I was glad to be able to do that for him because I know that my dad's been on radio. He's been on TV. He's been in press with media and printed press. And uh, like I said, he's been on television specials. So he's done all that, but he's never been in a movie. Right and and now that he's 85, I thought this would be something I could kind of do for him as sort of like a farewell present, like a way of honoring him, you know, and that side of him that I yeah. was was an entertainer and wanted to be famous and be able to get him in a movie, and so that's the main reason I was doing that. It was sort of like like I said, it was sort of like my farewell gift to him. Not that he's dying or anything, but you know, it'll be. Yeah, that's him. That's, that's As Jeff you
0: know, is uh, Googling uh, pictures of Jonathan's dad. Yeah, over here. Uh,
2: feel free to put that one up on if, if it connects to. What they didn't see is a photo of my dad uh, and Spanky the Chimp dressed in their outfits from when he created the, their scene from Alice in Wonderland. And and if I'm... So Spanky is dressed like Alice, and my dad is dressed like the rabbit. My dad was a musical uh, theater major at Northwestern University, he was uh, in the same class of people like Jerry Orbach from wow. Law and Order, uh, yeah. who's also, uh, be our guest, be our guest. Oh, <laughs> you know, he was that, singing that. So, um, Man, who's who? My dad also designed those costumes. Wow. Using that musical theater major thing. And, and so, you know, yeah, you put that photo in with this episode because then people can see the photo Absolutely. of Spanky the Chimp. Now, by the way, that's not the original Spanky that you'll see in that photo. That was actually Spanky Jr.
0: I think, just funny little side story here, our improv-like group chat photo at one point, I think I made it your father's headshot with the original Spanky, because he was yes. sitting on his shoulder yes. there. Yep, It's legendary, just legendary stuff. We'll have a picture of that, too, because it's, it's magical.
2: Because my dad had uh, Spanky retire around 1966, and that photo's from 1968. So that was Spanky Junior. All the chimps performed underneath the name Spanky. That was their stage name. Of course. They had different names off stage. My dad's last chimp was named Marvin. But they Spanky were always Marvin. performing under Spanky. So it's sort of like Minuta of Chimps, you know, once they I hit a it. certain age, yeah. they were out and somebody else came in.
0: Oh, you're on to the next one. Yeah. Enjoy retirement.
2: Yeah. So uh, you know, I was influenced, even though I don't have any direct memories of Mm -hmm. growing up with the chimp, but I have my mom's stories about those experiences and about Spanky, the original chimp. And, you know, my mom said up until about I was four or five years old, if i get excited, I would bounce up and down like a chimp. (laughs) So clearly, I kind of saw Spanky as like an older brother type. His legacy lives on. Yes. Yeah.
0: And did that, just out of curiosity, too, because I know some of the exercises we've done is actually some that we've done as uh, scare actors as well to get kind of warmed up. You know, it's like animal activities or animal characteristics in an improv scene. Ha- growing up like that, is that something that made you gravitate to that particular exercise in improv classes? Or would you have done uh, that without- No, speaking? I
2: didn't create that improv exercise. I learned it when I was an improv student. Right. And and uh, the animals thing really comes more from acting rather than yep. the improv side. But improvisers learn how to improvise from it. But it's so good at uh, creating characters, pretending that you are either like a quarter animal, bird, reptile, or insect, or fifty percent animal, bird, reptile, or insect, or fish. You know uh, that you're you're still mainly human, like fifty percent to seventy-five percent. But it's a really great way of creating characters and giving yourself permission, a little permission, to move in a way differently than how you normally move. Absolutely, because everybody has their own way of moving that they're used to and that Mm -hmm. moving beyond or in different ways pushes them past their comfort zone. Yeah. But if you think of it as an animal, it's so much easier to give yourself permission to be able to move in that way and in that capacity. Absolutely. And so that's why it's such a uh, great exercise to do to create characters.
0: Absolutely. And it's, it's a great way to break the ice too and get people out of their shell, especially if they've had no acting experience, because I know, You know, on the haunted house side of things, when they did that, that was, uh, you saw people that were just kind of like stonewalled wallflowers, didn't want to be seen, come out of their shell because they don't want to be the ones left out and not have fun or not just be in character doing it.
2: And then they tell themselves, oh, I'm being this type of animal. I am a ghost who is also a giraffe. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever it might be.
0: Now, I hated to see the ones that decided they wanted to be a snake because doing that on a concrete floor did not look fun but better no. them than me
2: right right uh, yeah I was so glad for you when that turned out so successful then you were using those tech techniques when you were being in charge of it absolutely uh, and I think I told you the time that I for one year I did work at a haunted house yes you did yeah and it was in Albuquerque New Mexico Ooh. and uh, and it was a different time because it was the late it was the uh, late 80s so we probably got away with stuff that you couldn't get away with now.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, I yeah. mean, there's there's a lot now, especially still COVID, pandemic, that you can't do like you did four or five years ago. But it, it's ever-evolving at this point. But even contact, making contact, grabbing people, can't do it anymore.
2: Right. Back then in uh, uh, the late 80s, you could.
0: Oh, man, that would have been some fun. Yeah, that and, would have been fine. you know, there were
2: different characters that I would play. I'd be assigned them different nights, and so you'd, I'd be playing different characters in different rooms, mm-hmm. but after a while, there was a couple that were my favorite and a couple that were my least favorite, you know, and I'd get assigned to be, like, in this one room. All I can do is just make noise while uh, people are going past this sort of gra- series of graves. was really boring. I was like, right. boo, boo. Um... <laughs> uh, You know, I remember being in a science lab with doctors. You know, like that was the idea was that it was like a medical exam thing gone wrong. And that's where the ghost was. And I remember climbing on the walls and walking along the tops of the walls because I was like, oh, that'll make me look really nuts. You know, which the next day they're like, that was great, but don't do it again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't damage the props. Right.
2: Uh, (laughs) And then the thing I remember the most is that I loved, and this might be interesting that it plays into that, I loved playing a gorilla in a cage. Very nice. And I don't know how much of that has to do with uh, growing up at the gym for two right, years, right. two and a half years, but I loved playing this gorilla in the cage. And and what was fun about playing the gorilla in the cage is two things. Uh, it was sort of uh, the cage was uh, like an angle of two walls that had come together. So, you know, as they're uh, walking through there's one wall and they can't see, and they can see the other wall, but it's a different part, almost like a different, you know. Yeah. Everybody would walk through past me and they'd go through through some other stuff and then they come back uh, past me on the other side, but they didn't know I was there. So, amazing. So with the uh, uh, cage and the bars, all of them were real except for two which were rubber. Oh, man. And I knew which (laughs) the rubber ones were and no one else did. And then there was a side door... So that uh, when I knew they were coming back the other way after having turned the corner, I can jump on and scare Double them again whammy. from the yes. yes. yeah. I, I really, like that. really enjoyed that. I and love it. it was super fun. Um, you know, but I do remember one time uh, there were some like drunk bros. Of course. and of course. Uh, I was being the gorilla and they hit me. And I got so mad, I hit back. And when I hit back, they freaked out. Because also, did I open the bar, stick my hand through, and I punched back.
0: Oh, man.
2: And they went running. And my brain went, don't fuck with the gorilla.
0: That's right.
2: That's right. (laughs) And then when they, you know, I made sure, waiting for them to come out from the other side. And normally, when they come out the other side, you're supposed to go behind them to scare them again so they don't see you. Instead, I opened up the door before they got there and jumped out confronting them. <laughs> and half of them ran backwards and the other half ran like underneath my arms trying oh, to get away. Oh man. And they went back inside and I thought, yeah. Oh, I the was man right. Card was pulled don't on fuck that one. with that gorilla. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's kind of like a good life lesson." Right? You know, it was like uh uh the you know, the part of me that just came out it was like, well, you know, you're wearing a gorilla suit. It's really hard not to get in touch with sort of like a gorilla consciousness. Very true. You know, I mean, and it wasn't like I was hitting people. They hit me first. Exactly. They, were, they were drunk bros and they were like, you know, we're supposed to stick our hands out and stuff. And they're, you know, they, when they got close, they threw a punch through one of the, you know, I was like, fuck you.
0: Now, if only if only those people at the Cincinnati Zoo all those years ago would have known not to fuck with the gorilla. But right
2: here we are. Yeah, I, I, you know, you talk about life lessons. That's one of them. Don't fuck with the gorilla.
0: It's so funny you mentioned that, though, because um, actually, man, I, I can't even believe it's been like 10 years ago at this point, but actually did. Uh, it was a mix of a haunted house and wrestling at Six Flags in wow. Atlanta, Georgia. And wow. I don't even know how that could work. I, I don't either, but they did it like all throughout October, and they gave the wrestlers like free rides at the park. So you'd see a bunch of guys going around in their gear just riding the roller coasters. I was the wrestling gorilla in that, but it was like in the haunted house, in the haunted attraction, in a wrestling ring, and I was in the gorilla suit. So it's it's just so funny how a gorilla continues to bond things, although I know somewhere former guest of the show Seven is rolling his eyes, but it's well worth it.
2: Well, I would say that sort of like somehow how some actors talk about having played Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you played Hamlet, I played Hamlet, this is what I did. So I think we can say that we, we you know, we played a gorilla, so we have that in common. We can share that and go, yeah, I'm yep. now yeah. Now I can hang
0: that over everybody else in our improv group, you know. Just yeah, I was a gorilla, he was the gorilla, right? I'm Spanky Junior. Anyway, yeah, we had the hair game going on at one point, and then I messed that all up. Oh well,
2: <laughs> but your hair looks great. I like, Thank I like you. the way it I looks. Gotta,
0: quiet, Jeff. Any- <laughs> anyway, um. He's wanna... just
2: not happy with any compliment about other people's hair because no. he doesn't have any.
0: I have to get back to singing his praises about making this show sound pretty.
2: He does, though.
0: He does. He and does. Now, see, there's the smile.
2: We win. We're on good terms again. He is. He may be follically challenged, but he is technologically astute. Ah.
0: See, you just lowered your status and elevated his. Which yep. brings me to something I want to circle back to, especially because you said you ended up traveling to. More countries than your father did too. What and it
2: it wasn't a race. It wasn't like I was like, "I'll show my dad, I'm going to do more countries than him." Right. Leave me alone in an old park, will you? Just watch this. (laughs) That wasn't. I mean, it wasn't until he said that it was more countries that I was aware of it. Until then, I was just like, "I want to go to as many countries as I can."
0: Absolutely. And then, like, when you're as you're doing it, obviously you're not thinking of those things. But what is it like, you know, like reaching out and making those connections in these. Strange new places where there may be a language barrier or, you know, like, improv may not be as prevalent to them as it is, you know, like, where we're from. How do you breach that gap and, you know, like, get the ball rolling to make that connection?
2: So that was eight questions at once. Oh. Uh, I'm happy to answer any of them or all of them. I just want to know which order you want them answered in, or which one you want to hear first, because otherwise... uh, it will lead to a monologue on my part as opposed to... I would
0: say, however, it makes sense to answer the question because it's always fascinated me, and we've never had the time to actually stop and talk about it in class because there's so much to learn in a short period of time.
2: Uh, I was the co-founder and executive producer of the Chicago Improv Festival, Mm -hmm. which for a long time was the world's largest improv festival. Uh, I produced it for 20 years, and during that time, every year, I made sure that we at least had one group from another country... But several years, we'd have seven or eight countries there. So during all that time, because I'm really excited by doing work on an an international level, uh, so during that time, I was just happy to have them come to the United States. And most times, they would be staying in my apartment because uh, I had a three bedroom apartment at the time. Right. So it was like having a, ho- a hostel. You know, there was like uh, there were so many people staying there, and. Yeah but it was a way of being able to make it more affordable for them and be able to make it happen. Of course, uh, Because in America, we don't have a Ministry of the Arts like most other countries do. And in America, I don't know if you know this, but the second largest exported goods of the United States is entertainment.
0: That sounds about right. I can not believe that.
2: It is not supported as such like that from and- Congress or the Senate. Like it would if the second largest goods... Exported from the United States was coal or corn. There would be all kinds of things yeah. pumping into it financially to help that out and help out the mom and pops in every step yep. of the way. Our, you know, America, we don't make much anymore, but we make entertainment.
0: Yep, and it, you know,
2: from blue je- and culture, like from blue jeans to uh-huh. karaoke, that's what we make. And and uh, and I think it shows in the fact that you have. So many reality TV shows, like people who aren't famous for doing anything other than winning that reality TV show. Right, right. So the fact that we don't have a ministry of art or culture makes bringing in people from other countries much more difficult. Also, the fact that geographically we're so far away from everybody else. Yeah. Like being in Europe, getting other countries to go to a European festival is like us driving to Cleveland. You know, you yep. cry, you drive that far and you're in another country. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. you know, yes, we could get people from Canada and Mexico, but outside of that, after that, it was like nothing but water. Yeah. And so I was very happy to have international acts at the Chicago Improv Festival every year and be able to take care of them and treat them well and then have them meet improvisers from Chicago and other improvisers around the United States. And so... When, I didn't realize that when I was done producing the Chicago Improv Festival after 20 years that I had already created my next thing right because that wasn't the plan of oh I'm gonna bring all these people in so that in a few years I can go to their city and their town and their theater and their festival but that's what it turned out to be because uh, once I once I was doing a podcast with Jimmy Corrine, and I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not producing the festival anymore. He's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I'd like to travel. Somebody in the Czech Republic heard that podcast and then said, we're going to do our first ever festival. Would you like to come out? And so I said, sure. And as long as I was going to go over to the Czech Republic, I thought, who else do I know that's around there that I can say, hey, I'm going to be in Europe for a while. Do you want me to come teach and perform? Yeah. And then that just led to everything else. And so instead of producing a festival, I started producing my own tours because whether or not it was a festival or me, a lot of the logistical skills was the same. Uh, and then from that, once I started performing in, a, in front of other people in other countries, I would meet other people and they'd say, hey, would you like to come here? I was teaching uh, in the Philippines and in Manila uh, for a summer camp. Uh, for adults that did improv. And I met this woman from Singapore and she said, we're going to have our own festival in Singapore in two two or three months. It's not a lot of time, but would you like to come? And I'm like, yes.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: And I've been to Singapore five times now. And so, you know, a lot of it is once you start getting known for doing this, then other people go, oh, do you want to come? Yeah. And, you know, I would say half to two thirds of everybody I went to the first time were all people that I knew from the Chicago Improv Festival because of having brought them out. And then after my first couple of trips, everything else was through people that I already met when being on the road. Yeah. And so, you know, so much of the creative arts, probably like wrestling, is just be present and put the stuff out there.
0: Absolutely. And that word of mouth helps.
2: Right. Show up, be present, you know, get that stuff out there and then. If people are interested they'll connect to it absolutely and then they'll ask you to be involved so that's how I ended up uh, teaching and performing all over the world you know in Europe and Asia and oceania and it was like an immense joy yeah it really brought me I mean it was like one of the blessings of my life to be able to do it and um, you know in America there's a famous saying there's no third acts in America so uh you know running the chicago improv festival for 20 years and the college improv tournament in the chicago podcast festival mm-hmm. was sort of like my second act because my first act was learning improvisation and then uh doing it in chicago and then moving to albuquerque new mexico for three years and creating an improv and sketch group that do it 250 shows in Ooh. two and a half years and th- you know i kind of look at that as like getting my undergrad and master's degree in improvisation. I think of that as my first act. Everything I did with CIF and everything else is the second act. And it made sense to me that I had to go to somewhere else in the world to have a third act because most plays in America are just two acts. Whereas in other countries, they're three. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, and and during COVID it was hard because I missed all those people. Mm -hmm. I missed having that community and And that's why it was so fun to start working with you guys and have you guys repeat because then you guys became your own community, which is lovely to watch and lovely to see and and how much you guys really care about each other as well as, you know, caring about the art form. But you guys truly care about each other. Was that a snore? Am I boring? (laughs) I thought, oh oh my God, I just hit a boring thing. He's like, here's a hint. Okay, That's great. Uh, uh, not right. a
0: not a boring signal. That's the Tennessee allergy striking again.
2: <laughs> but but it's, Oh man, when I first came here, I was parking along outside and whatever's in the trees made my eyes weep. Yeah. Like I was like I looked like somebody died. I was like it just had all this weeping going on. So I took a second allergy pill.
0: It's been irritating my contacts all day. So like going okay. and visiting, you know, family today or you know, as we're recording, it's my anniversary. It's like, are you crying because it's your anniversary all day? <laughs> like, no, my eye is on fire, and it's this one contact. But, you know, I, I was born and raised in this neighborhood, and I never had these problems until wow. I grew up. It's It's ridiculous how the world around us works. But if it wasn't raining right now, I could go outside, and my truck would look yellow with all this pollen on it. I don't even know where it comes from.
2: Wow. But well, that's why I took a second. I, I take an allergy pill every day. I just mm-hmm. took a second one. I'm like, this is too much. Yeah, that's, that's uh, Tennessee,
0: because it'll change tomorrow, unfortunately.
2: Wow. But well, uh, uh, that, I ran into that. Thank you, Tennessee.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was pointing the governor. Anyway. Um,
2: <laughs> the worst experience I ever had with pollen is was in Sydney, Australia. Oh. In January. And it turns out that that is the height of their pollen season. Really? And it's because they're in a harbor. Them. And I got so tremendously sick from allergies, and I went to a community doctor who turned out to be an aboriginal doctor Ooh. who mainly took care of aboriginal patients. So it was sort of fun, like, oh, I'm having a cultural experience as well as, like, seeing a doctor. At a, and, you know, and was less expensive than... I mean, because it's Australia, it wasn't that expensive. Right, right. And I was able to get seen. And he's the one who told me, oh, of course you're having this reaction. You know, if you have airborne allergies. He said, you've got the worst month in all of the year for Sydney because that's when we our pollen season happens. And it's because the waters are getting warmer again in the right. harbor. And that's when this takes off. And he said that uh, when they have it going, they have the highest pollen count in the world. And I was like, note to self, never come back to Sydney in January. And it
0: just, I, I know I'm basing it off of, you know, like the U.S. Where I'm, where I'm from, but it just does not sound right to say you have that much pollen in January. Now, if you say March, April, May. Right, but for sure, them, that's their yeah, summer. Man, that's, just, oh. That's
2: the start of their summer. So it's like, that's man. what made it, you know, so difficult. Now, on the other hand, seeing him and then getting a prescription Cost me $20.
0: Crikey.
2: Being seen that day, just showing up, seen by a doctor, cost me $20. The prescription that he gave me that I went and got was $5. I want to cry. America, America. America. Just don't get shot. (laughs) Wise
0: words, wise words in a jingle. But um, man, I could we could go off on a whole another tangent on that.
2: Well, that was the other thing traveling around the world. I would see. Oh, oh, oh! Look at the way these people live. This works. You don't oh, say. Oh, and then when I every time I would return to Chicago, I would return and I just feel the fear that's in the air that I never notice when I'm in Chicago. Yeah.
0: You become so accustomed to it, but right. when
2: you leave. But when you leave and you go to a place where it's not that and you return, you're like, wow, this is so intense. Just there's this unspoken fear everywhere, but we're used to it. And, you know, there was. Uh, I, I went off to Norway f- for a friend's wedding on a 4th of July weekend because mm-hmm. it was 4th of July weekend for America, but Norway was just July Another 4th. Day. Yeah. yeah. And so I was there for a friend's wedding and and uh, it was a wonderful wedding and in Chicago if not in Chicago then somewhere else there was a huge 4th of July mass shooting and oh and, yeah you know it the sadness is that we can't even remember it except it, for just knowing that it happened I, and the details even, are like, wait, which one was that? Where? What?
0: I think I know. I think I remember which one it was. Unfortunately, right. but then again, I may misspeak on that. But we've had so many, yes, that it just it you, blurs together. You don't become desensitized, but it just it all runs together, and it's so sad to even put that into a, into
1: and, a phrase. And I realized
2: I had been in multiple countries for six weeks. And not one person was shot in any one of those six, oh, those multiple countries in those six weeks. Wow! And when I saw the amount of death that happened over Fourth of July weekend, and again, I think I think it's not like forty people were shot in Chicago, and I was like, why am I going back? And and I was like, this doesn't, you know, you can learn a lot about a country by what they have the most of. Yeah. In Scotland, they have more sheep than they have people. In New Zealand, they have more sheep than they have people. Hmm. In Amsterdam, they have more bikes than they have people. In America, we have more guns than we have people.
0: Man, how does that work with the bikes, though, if there's more bikes than people?
2: Well, there's different bikes that you use for different purposes. Okay, that There's your everyday bike that you would use to go back and forth to work, and it's okay if it's kind of credit because you're going through traffic. Right, right. Then there's your bike that you have that you go for longer trips out into, you know, and then maybe if you're... A uh, uh, parent, you've got a different bike that you attach your kids' stuff to. Oh and yeah, yeah, yeah. Got you know, a so there's car, yeah. right there's different bikes for different purposes. Yeah. You know, and and being in those countries, they don't have the kind of fear that we do. Right. You know, and you never hear in Scotland or New Zealand that there's a drive-by sheep. <laughs> you yeah, know, I mean, like
0: <laughs> the Loch Ness monster may show up and try to bum some money, but, but that's, that's about it. Yeah, yeah. I'd be all right with that.
2: And so being in those places was just really like, wow, this is. So different, and, and uh, you know, people would ask me at the time, it's again, this it pre COVID, what do other people want to know the most about Americans about? And you know, in Europe, everyone wanted to know if Donald Trump was going to drop the nuclear bomb because that was their biggest fear oh. because they felt in the middle of it, yeah, between the US and Russia, or US, right, and China. Right, 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 right. Whereas when I was in Asia, they all wanted to know why do you have shootings at schools
0: i wish we, knew. we
2: don't have anything like that yeah you know and i was like that you know both of i, I could kind of go well i don't think donald trump's going to drop a nuclear bomb but when they're like why do you have sh- sco- school shootings i couldn't answer that right you know and um so being in other countries where they don't have some of those things it just shows and not not just about gun control you know Living in places where they have cradle-to-grave health care, where you can get basic state education for free. Like, if you want to go to Harvard, their version of it, you have to pay for it. Of course. But if you want to go to the state, you know, like here, the University of Tennessee. Yeah. Or Tennessee State University, that would be free. And so people are living lives without the fear of being side-wrecked by health care. And coming out and getting education. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone gets an education because if you still want to go learn a trade, you're like, college isn't for me. Right. You can go be an electrician, and they'll they'll train you for free.
0: And it's probably more encouraged than it is here as well.
2: Yes. Yeah. And so going, wow, that stuff works. Why are we not doing that? And and as such, mm. they also then are more connected to the arts. Yep. And, you know, uh. uh So it's been, you know, and I'm sure somebody might be listening to you. Well, if you don't like America, why don't you leave? I couldn't because COVID shut us down. Wah, wah. And uh, uh, it's interesting to see when people live, not that they don't have problems, because they do. But they're not the level that we have here.
0: Right. Or that we make them out to be to try and, like, dampen or make our problems look minuscule compared to that.
2: Right. Like, in some of the Scandinavian countries, they have problems with addictions, you know, people having addictions, but what they do is they help give them what they're addicted to so they're not out there robbing and stealing. Like, all the people did that got addicted to fentanyl and, yeah. and uh, all the sort of... You know, uh, the the method that, that was put out. Right. 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 And and they were robbing and stealing everything just to buy stuff. Whereas here in those other countries, they're like, we're not going to be able to, you know, we're going to try and get them off these things. But until they do, we're going to give them this so they don't bother other people.
0: Right. And if I'm not mistaken, I think maybe Oregon or Washington State somewhere had had tried that. But, man, I don't, can't even tell you if that was last year, or two years ago, because it all just kind of. Runs together and then get brought gets brushed under the rug,
2: but, right? Yeah, I mean clearly yeah.
0: it it works for something because you can see the statistics on it.
2: Yes, and uh, yeah, so that is one of the things. And also, like for example, I have a nutritionalist who um, wants me to stop eating chicken in America because of the way the chickens are raised and taken care of. When I was in Europe, he's like, "Eat as much chicken as you want," because the chicken there are all grass fed. Mm-hmm. So they're plant-based, and then they run around and they're free. So, and and when I was over there, I did have chicken. I was surprised it tasted lighter and brighter.
0: Damn you, Colonel Sanders!
2: <laughs> and then I came back and I looked at some of our monster chickens, you know. And I was like, oh, okay, I see this, you know. I can see uh, why, yeah. And he also said, oh yeah, go ahead and have butter over there because the butter's different because the cows are grass-fed. Mm. So what they're producing through the milk is a whole different. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then simultaneously, it really is true, Guinness is better in England and Ireland, and not just because you're in England, Ireland, Scotland. I found out that uh, what makes the difference is that in Ireland, they use Irish waters, whereas they use American waters for the stuff that gets- The mass produced over here. So it's a different water. And then also, they actually put nitrogen into their- uh, cans when they put them in there, and so when they're pouring it, nitrogen is part of what affects the taste. Oh, in America, they don't have the nitrogen in there. That's why they have that little ball inside the can. Yeah, yeah. To try and shake it up, similarly to nitrogen, yeah. you know. And so when I was in Dublin this last time, I had this, am- you know, amazing meal of uh, clam chowder and brown bread and butter, and a shot of Irish whiskey and. Guinness and it was just delicious. And I came back to Chicago and I was like, "Oh, I was at an Irish bar at a storytelling event. And i was like, oh, I'll have a Guinness." And it tasted horrible. I was like, it tasted like vinegar.
0: Uh, oh, oh god. And I
2: was like, as oh. opposed to in Ireland, it's like, "Oh, yeah, this is a meal."
0: Yeah. Uh, man, you're you're really pushing me in in favor of going to London next April now. So I may have to uh may have to uh, drag the misses along for that one especially if there's beer involved so
2: So yeah. Uh, Do you have uh, a
0: passport Jeff? <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> we'll we'll cross that bridge later.
2: <laughs> uh, I hear they're $150. <laughs>
0: oh, that's actually not terrible. It's gone up, but damn inflation.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of things there's a lot of things that I learned traveling around the world and part of it is I try to immerse myself in the culture of each place that I'm at. Absolutely. Because rather than coming in saying, I am teaching this way because I'm from Chicago, so bow down before me in the Chicago knowledge and the Chicago way, uh, I want to learn. You know, I have things to share and teach, but I also have to be aware of the culture that I'm in and sometimes even learn about the education system that those people in that country grew up with. Yeah. And then be able to modify what I'm doing to fit how they're used to learning.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's. It's what you taught us in several of these classes now is you know like knowing or being able to adapt your status to you know the scene or the people you're on stage with or the room that you're in there with. And that was something that like it came later in our lessons, but we've been kind of doing it the entire time. But you just didn't tell us we were doing it until that point, too. Right, yeah. Where did you learn to you know, figure out the status? Because like you said, some people will just come in high and mighty as a defense mechanism. Sure. And then rub people the wrong way. Others will be meek until they get that chance to be their right. true selves. How did you develop that? Well,
2: I first learned about status through a guy named Keith Johnstone, who wrote about it in a book called Impro. And then uh, some of the people who studied with him had workshops, and so I learned from that. And then a lot of it is also just learning to study human beings like one of your questions was like how did i do this in other countries uh-huh. with other languages yeah and you know whenever i would work in another country where i did not know the language uh, the first day that we would work together i would have somebody translate like a lot of countries english is the second language yeah. so i would have them speak english if they knew it and if they didn't i would have somebody next to me translating but that would be for the first day because i wanted to get to know them by the second day I would ask them to only improvise in their own language. Because through the first day, I learned what their tendencies were. Yeah. And then, then I could see what they're doing or not doing. And then after that, I wanted them to be in their own language because uh, even though they all improvise, pretty much everybody I've met who improvises in English as a second language improvises so much better in that language than I ever could in theirs.
0: Oh, absolutely. And
2: But I still know that there's this moment of like you hear something, you hear it first in your language, but then you have to translate it to English and then translate it back to your language to then tra- to formulate a response and then translate it back to English and then say it. Yep. So I wanted to be able to remove that two or three second, And it wasn't even that long a pause, but I wanted to remove that from them so they could be responding more openly Absolutely. and more intuitively. And once they were able to go into their own language, I could see it. And I have had, I've done shows in other countries where audience members came up to me and started speaking the language because they thought that I knew the language. Oh, wow. You know, When I was in Milan, uh, Italy, the whole show, we did it in Italian, English, and silence. And with the English and silence, I had enough to know what was happening. Yeah, But people came up to me and started speaking to me afterwards in, in Italian because they thought I knew. I had the same thing happen when I was in Norway. The show was in Norwegian... And uh, English and silence. And people came up to me afterwards and just started talking Norwegian because they thought I knew. Right, uh, right. When I performed in a duo uh, in the Philippines, you know, my friend impro- improvised in his native language of Tagalog, and we'd also do English and silence. And um, you know, I just had to pick up the other things. And I always say that like, you know, when I work with people from other countries, we already share two of the same languages. And one is the language and technology and vocabulary of improvisation, Mm -hmm. and the other is we share the same language of humanity. Yep, because there's only so many ways that a body can move. There's only so many face muscles that you because we have the same amount of face muscles. Yeah. So there's only so many different things we can do with it, and so status is slightly cultural, but it's also still indicative of certain other things that come across from the human body or the tone of the voice. You know, uh, the one thing that confused me when I first ran into it, which was that um, in India and Nepal, they, India and Nepal, they both say yes differently than us. Right. In America, we say yes by nodding our head, just like Jeff just did, Mm -hmm. just like you just did. But in India, their yes is a shaking of the head from the chin down. And the first time I ran into it, I talked to a waiter. I was like, hey, can I have a Coke? And he went. I was like, oh, well, then can I have. Because I thought he was saying no.
0: Right, right, right. So I was like,
2: well, then can I have a sprite? (laughs) And he looked confused. Uh And that's when that got explained to me that that nodding of the head starting from the chin is the same gesture of saying yes that we have when we do this. Right. And in Nepal, it's even bigger. It's a really big, you know, but it's still. So it's interesting that even within two countries that have that same physical gesture for yes that's different than ours there's still variation
0: absolutely so if you
2: took an indian person and a a nepalese person and put them in the same scene and they were saying yes to each other we'd see different gestures
0: right that's so fascinating even though
2: they're both saying yes
0: yeah learning new things here i I love it
2: and so those are the kind of you know challenges to learn those things because you know and and of course when i'm the one misunderstood that that was a yes as opposed to no it's not on the waiter it's on me right 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 you know because uh, uh, if I because I don't have that American entitlement of like well learn how to say yes and um, you know traveling around the world doing improvisation was the easiest part of my day oh, that's amazing. the easiest part of my day working with people that I met uh, or didn't know or maybe knew one or two people but their improvisation that was the easiest part of my day Whereas just traveling around and being in another country, especially other countries that have different languages or both written or said was its own challenge. Yeah. And. The most humbling part that is the most unexpected difficulty, like I expect, oh, I'm in a Polish country. They use a lot of consonants in ways that we don't. Oh, I am in a Scandinavian country where they put two or three words together as one word, so it's an incredibly long word. I'm expecting some of that stuff. I'm in, I'm in, parts of, I'm in Vietnam, where the writing is much more round and curvy and a different form of writing mm-hmm. than our letters, which are all straight and edgy. Right. That was its own thing of learning, but, it, but that was like a fun challenge in ways. The thing that was the most humbling is plumbing and windows and bathrooms and doors. Because there are so many ways that people design them.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: That I've been in bathrooms going, I don't know how to turn on this sink. Help? Yeah. Like, if I'm in a public area, I'll ask. And then I'll, you know, sometimes people look at me like, you stupid, it's like this. (laughs) And, you know, other times, I just have to, like, I have to get help or I figure it out. Because there's so many different ways for plumbing to happen. So many different ways that you can have a toilet or not have a toilet, what's Mm. there or what's not there. Uh, I've seen windows open it, like I'm used to America, just windows opening up Um, and down. And in other parts of the country they have windows that open up towards you. And away. And also another one that opens up this way. Mm. And then ones that also open up kind of both and comes down. The first time I did that with a window, I thought I broke the window, because it was coming right towards me. They have doors that do the same kind of thing. I open up the door, and the whole door is coming off its hinges at me. Oh, no. And so every one of those things is a different challenge. And it feels, like, very humbling to be standing in front of a sink going, okay, I don't know how this works. Or same thing with the toilet. Yeah. And there's just so many different ways that those things are done. And it's still... Each one is its own challenge. And it gave me a lot more empathy about what it's like to be either a tourist or an immigrant in America because we're so used to our things set up the way they are. I mean, you know, in other countries, even opening up cabinets, they open up different ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, I think that, and I get how easy it is to, in America, no, we just have these ways that they do it. Duh. Yeah. Can't you do it? What are it's you right stupid? There. Yeah. It's right there. I was like, oh, no wonder why when some people move to America they only stay within their small circle because it takes them that long to learn the addresses, the words, and they're around other people from their country because they feel safe because they don't want to go around and feel stupid. Like all of a sudden I'm at a 7-Eleven. I don't know how to operate something and people are treating me like I'm an idiot, even though in my country I'm smart and I can do all these things. Right, right. So it gave me a lot more empathy about what Tourists go through, or what? Through immigrants go through. Yeah. So now in Chicago, if I see somebody who has a certain kind of look, look on their face that's lost, I'll go up to them and say, "Go back to your fucking country." No. <laughs> Instead, now I'll go up to them and I'll say, I'll say, "How can I help you? What do you need?"
0: Absolutely, and I mean not only that too, but like when I started learning different dialects, just realizing how difficult the English language is not only with everything else that these people would have to learn, you know, like coming over here, like that our way of like flushing a toilet or operating a sink is different, but you've got the words like read red, the color red, like you've got all these different words, different dialects that you may say, like a Southerner, Midwesterner. And it's just, it's a lot for one person to try and process by themselves.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I also feel that traveling around the world, Helps keep me young because it's oh, like, for sure. you know, they say that doing crossword puzzles is good to keep the brain active. Mm-hmm. I think part of keeping your brain active is all of a sudden be deposited in another country. Yeah. And and trying to figure out where you're going or how to get there. You know, because also every train schedule is set up differently in every country. <laughs> yeah. So there's a certain amount of time, like reading the train schedule, like it's hieroglyphics.
0: That's how I, how I felt in that... Chicago the first time. Right. Oh, buddy.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, uh, so a lot of that is its own challenges, and that's that's why sometimes traveling, the easiest part of my day is doing improv. When I go to another city, it's like the first day there, I'm a stranger. And then when I get together, the second day when I'm there and I'm with the improvisers, it's like all of a sudden I found all these people that are cousins mm-hmm. that I didn't know were cousins. Right. And then you know from that point on, they show me their city. You know, and I get to see what they do and what they like and what they're about. And, you know, uh, and then the last day that I'm there, that's the day that I'll finally do the tourist thing. Uh You know, but I will wait till the end when I already know what I've learned from them. And it changes how I do the tourist thing because then I am able to get in and get out without it being such a gawking experience. Right. But, you know, pretty much when I go there, I go the day before I have to do something and I'd be a stranger. Then I'd meet the improvisers. And, again, we'd hit it off. We're like cousins. Then from that point on, they would show me places, take me places, Uh you know, and and like, oh, you need to eat here. Let's go. And you need to see this thing. And it it gave me a much better sense of each city and each country based on what they were showing me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then at
2: that point, then I'd be like, okay, I will now go to see this thing that everyone goes to. Uh, But it just would feel different because that would be the last day. Right. And then I would move on to the next place.
0: Then start the process all over again. Yeah.
2: Whereas during COVID, I kind of go like, okay, this is an apartment. Same apartment.
0: Oh, look, there's a bug on the wall.
2: Oh, yeah, look at that. Wow. I'll put that in my gratitude journal. Talked with a bug today.
0: Then he died. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. And
0: yeah. I, I think I remember at least at one point throughout our, our teachings, you were at I think in was it Minnesota or Wisconsin? Uh, I
2: was in Michigan.
0: That's it, Michigan. Somewhere up there, yeah. I will get it right the third time. You were in Michigan and then you moved back to Chicago. Like yeah. you took a sabbatical up there. Right.
2: What, what was I,
0: that like? Just to, you know, change the scenery despite. Well, being I went in up lockdown? there
2: because um I was waiting out the uh vaccine coming. Oh, that's right. That's and right. I had a chance to stay at the apartment above Acorn Theater in Three Oaks, Michigan. My friend at the time owned the Acorn Theater, and the uh, it's like a three-bedroom apartment that's on top of a 250-seat theater. I'd been, I had both performed at the theater in the past and had stayed mm-hmm. in that apartment. Uh, he also used it for performers, but there was no performing going right, on because right, everything right. was shut down. He also used it as Airbnb, but there was no Airbnb going on, mm-hmm. so nobody was there. So I spent the last four months. Before getting the vaccine there, because I figured that being in a town of 1,300 gave me a better shot of not getting it till I got the vaccine shot yep. than being in a metropolitan area of eight million people.
0: Oh, for sure.
2: I was like, and most of the people in Three Oaks, Michigan, did not wear masks, but I still knew I was only going into a uh, uh, grocery shop and get out. So, them not wearing masks still, the it was like 1,300 people who might have it versus eight million. Uh-huh. and uh, the other thing that was fun was that because I wore a mask and they didn't they moved out of my way they're, they would see me wear a mask and they'd like oh, oh. And it, like you know oh he must be very you know immune or, or have a lot they just moved out of my way Right. I, it didn't happen in Chicago but in Three Oaks, Michigan wearing a mask was like having like a, a cross or garlic just people move they'd uh-huh. see the mask and they just move uh, you know, scarlet letter on or something. Yeah, it was like, man, you know, notice you know, they didn't always look at me with empathy, but they still move the fuck out of the way. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, I just might do this forever.
0: Absolutely. You know, I
2: was like, this is, God, I don't have to worry about running at anybody because they see the mask and they move out of the way. And then when I would go to the cashier and check out, uh, often the cashier would look at me and like cash out, look with her head turned away from me. Oh. I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is a power I didn't know that I had. It's just because of the mask. That's great. You know. Uh, right. uh Yeah. And and then I got the vaccine. And then once I got the first vaccine, I moved back to Chicago.
0: Man, it, it's crazy how that all blurs together, too, because I forgot the entire timeline on that. But we were all right there in the thick of it the entire time. Right. just flew by. Right. But th- that, that reminds me, too, around that same time, you actually taught me so much. And I know, like, you taught Jen, Katrina. Like, we've all sung your praises and even talked on this show about How you've helped us develop as actors. And like for me too, you've helped me embrace the wrestling portion of my background that I tried so hard to run away from, but now look where it got me. But you know, like a lot of people think improv is strictly comedy or you have to try to be funny. Like I know that was something that came up with not only myself, but Jen, I think even Denzel. And you would constantly tell us, you don't have to try to be funny, but your natural timing is where the comedy will come from. And it doesn't even have to be comedy. It can be a serious moment. It can be something that's improvised or or obviously improvised. But it can be emotional. (laughs) Right. But it doesn't have to be strictly comedy. And you taught us so much about that. What was it like not only like with our group but just seeing all these multiple thousands of people that you've taught and acted with, seeing those light bulb moments with them, what what was that like for you?
2: My goal every workshop is to have at least one person have an aha moment to where they like – Make that gesture. We're yep. like their brains exploding, and so if I have one person kind of do that, I know that I've done my job, uh, uh, and so that's what I aim for, you know. And it's always great to see people make those kinds of discoveries. One of my favorite sayings about improv I learned from uh, my friends who were in Bangalore, India. They have like an improv poster and uh, values their mission statement and. You know, what's on there is it's more important to be sincere than it is to be funny. That's true. And by being sincere, you will become funny Uh because uh, people being sincere together reveals things about human behavior and human behavior is funny either because of recognition or shock or discovery. uh, And that comes out of human behavior, whereas when you're not being sincere and you're trying to make a joke... Uh, a lot of unless you're really good at that, uh, instead it kind of falls flat because you know you're aiming for a joke and then it goes yep. and so it was. But at the same time, I th- I feel like everybody should be their version of themselves as they learn how to improvise and then later on add on characters, but learn the fundamentals of improvisation as themselves. And I want everybody to bring who they are to the stage and to the work mm-hmm. because each person is so different. We're all differently the same. Yep, That's one of the things I like to say is we're all differently the same. I love it. And if everybody brings themselves and who they are, we will have an amazing diversity of people oh, because yeah. of life experience. And, and, you know, rather than you trying to run away from being a, a wrestler, being able to use it as part of what you do, and then that expands it rather than being in denial. So, exactly. So, you know, uh, uh, w- one of my teachers once said, if you bring the facts of your life to improvising through improv, it turns into fiction. So you bring those elements yep. of your life to it. And then through the process of improvising, it becomes something else. And and that's always super exciting to see because I want everyone to find their voice. Absolutely. I don't want them to have my voice partially because my voice is copywritten and <laughs> trademarked. Uh, but I want everyone to have their own voice because, you know, I already know what I sound like and yeah. I already, you know, but but there isn't any, I feel like Mr. Rogers, there isn't anybody like you. But there is that truth in improvisation Absolutely. is that when it's you doing a scene with Jen or you doing a scene with Denzel, there was no one else in the world that could do that scene.
0: Right. That's it. I mean, that's, and that's, a powerful life lesson right there, too, not just for improv, but just, like, in everyday life. You, I guess guess that's something that's come up on this show several times. Like, you are enough. You are uniquely you. And what you bring to the table, or what I bring to the table, is not what Jeff brings, not what Jonathan brings, and vice versa. You can spend it however you want. It's not what my wife brings to the table. It's... You bring your own experiences and you may not think, you know, you may be your own worst critic or you may overanalyze it, but when you're in that moment, the choices you make and commit to are what you bring to the table and they are what make that scene good, bad or indifferent. They made that scene unique.
2: Yeah. And I would say most times I'm pretty good at helping people. Feel encouraged about being who they are through their own uniqueness. Absolutely. Sometimes I'm not, and I always end up regretting that because I feel like I failed that person. Uh, uh, partially because, you know, I've I've missed out on something or overstated something or understated something, uh-huh. and so in those moments I'm more like, oh damn it. I, in some ways, now that person doesn't feel like they can be themselves because i misdiagnosed, like, where they were or what they were doing. Right, right. And, uh, and if I'm aware of it, I attempt to, you know, make an apology or make an amends because ultimately I really do want everybody to be themselves in this art form. Absolutely. You know, it's not like normal acting where you don't want people to be themselves. You want them to be Hamlet. Yep. You want them to be Ophelia. You want them to be somebody else. And it's not like necessarily like in wrestling where you want them to be the red cloak yeah. or, or you know, who's who's the baby face and who's the heel. heel. And, you know, so you need those sort of archetypes. But improvisation, it starts with you being you in this situation. And then you can move, you know, find characters from that and move on from that. But it starts with you being you. Absolutely. And, uh, and ultimately, Absolutely. that's why I want every kind of voice that's available to be in stuff like that because yeah. it's always interesting and always different. And so then I see things that I've never seen before. Whereas, you know, when people are kind of faking it, I can look at certain scenes and go, I know exactly where this is going to go. Yeah. And I can predict it before they even get there. You know, a friend of mine who used to be the house manager of Second City said she could walk into the main stage theater, know within five to ten seconds of whether or not it was working on stage. And that was all because wow. of the energy of whether or not the p- players on stage were connecting or not. And if the energy was there, it almost didn't matter what they were doing. They were connected. It was good. If yep. they weren't, they were in trouble. They're going to have to figure out how to fix it. And so uh, I feel a similar kind of way about the need for... Every human being that does improv to be okay about being themselves Uh and bringing that to the table, and then through the process of improvising, becoming other things or other people or other places and stuff.
0: That makes that makes perfect sense. And I just going back to it too. It's something that's come up on this podcast on Tales from the Haunt bringing that level of authenticity to what you bring on stage because you can't develop these characters if you can't even bring your authentic self to what you're doing in that moment. And it's, it's again, not only acting, it's everyday life.
2: And once you can learn how to fake that authenticity, you got it nailed.
0: <laughs> What's that old saying? Fake it till you make it? That, yep. Yeah, yeah. that's fake it. Fake it till you make it. That is you know, it.
2: If you can be really good at sincerity, you don't need to be sincere.
0: That's it. Man. How many life lessons have we dropped on this show tonight?
2: Well, uh, most of them, but I would exclude the last two, just in (laughs) case anybody thinks that I'm being sincere about saying don't be sincere or that I'm uh, uh, actually I'm in favor of authenticity and sincerity. Oh man. Thumbs up to both yep, of Yep, he's as giving it, the thumbs up right now. Jeff and I to, saw it, so it just happened. Just me saying that, <laughs> you know, that's a life lesson. Um, you know, there's a couple things that I learned traveling around the world and then there's something else that I learned during COVID. Mm-hmm. So I'm very comfortable sharing those with people, especially during some of these podcasts. The biggest thing I learned traveling around the world is that undeclared boundaries are cultural, personal, and artistic assumptions.
0: Yep, and that's something that's come up in class, too.
2: Yeah. Because everybody has their own assumptions based on their life experience, mm-hmm. where they're from, and if it's not talked about or brought up, then then it's easy to have misunderstandings. Yep. Whereas when people share whatever their cultural assumptions might be, or their boundaries from that, uh, uh, you know, their artistic processes. Because I would even imagine wrestling. You, you know, maybe there's somebody who has learned from one school of wrestling and. If they aren't able to talk it out with somebody who's from a different school of wrestling, they may be doing moves on each other in the middle of the ring and think each one's the other person's an asshole. Yeah. Because they're not doing the absolutely. thing, but they're being true to their school, but they're not able to like communicate to each yep. other. This is what I'm doing because of why, and and then, you know, and I imagine at that point, then that's when you have the real risk of somebody getting injured.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and it's something I've learned too because. If I can't communicate it or if I know that I can't do it to honor your style of it, I'll tell you. Because I don't want to get hurt. I don't want you to get hurt. Right. And I don't want to make you look bad or make myself look bad, too. So let's find a middle ground and go from there. And
2: that's where it's like, undeclared boundaries are cultural, personal, and artistic assumptions. Uh Because you're just assuming, well, of course that's not going to happen. But if it's not communicated, how can it? Exactly. If you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In fact, just two nights ago, I was doing a show uh, in Charlotte and ahead of time, I asked everybody in the cast, because this is my first time performing with them, do you have any boundaries? I asked if people have uh, uh, physical boundaries, emotional boundaries, or content boundaries. And for me, physical, of course, is places they don't want to be touched or ways they want to be touched, whatever it is that they might have. Uh, To me, emotional boundaries are more like... You might have just been fired from your job, so you don't want to be in a scene about being unemployed, right? Or your turtle might have just died, and you don't want to be in a scene with dead turtles. You know, whatever that might be. Uh, and then also content boundaries could be, you know, please don't make fun of Jesus. I'm a born again, and it really matters to me. Right? Or uh, I'm Jewish. Don't. Whatever it might be content-wise. And uh, so I asked everybody, and only a few boundaries came up. Uh, and, and and of course, if somebody says it's a boundary. I, don't want, I just know I won't improvise about it because there's no reason to. You could, if, Even if you have 10, 15 boundaries ultimately taken off the board, it still only leaves you a million things to improvise about.
0: Exactly. I mean, there's plenty more material.
2: Yes. And so uh, my friend who ran the theater uh, said, no, whatever you want to do. And then I went out there, and uh, out of context is going to sound incredibly cruel, but it wasn't. It was very funny. But I ended up doing a scene that had a dead baby. <laughs> and uh, and and part of what it was is in this one scene, a guy coming came home as a father with the new baby, and a woman was playing the mother, and the rest of us were playing all the kids, and I made myself the youngest child, and I screamed and was very upset. I'm like, I'm no longer the youngest baby of the family. That's not fair. And then one of the women held me to her, obviously an older sister. And then he's like saying, this is your kid. You got to get used to her, the the baby. I went up as a kid and smacked the baby and, oh, no. as he was holding it. And I smacked it. And I expected him to think, oh, he's going to be, he's he knows that I'm a child. So, you know, kids can't smack that hard. Right. Because I knew, know that siblings do things like that, yeah. unfortunately. And so I smacked the baby. And again, there's not a real baby on stage. It's air. It's right. air. It's pretend. And I smacked the uh, baby as the kid, and he reacted to it as if I was the adult that smacked it. Oh, So the no. baby fell out of his hand <laughs> no. and hit the ground. Oh. And, of course, it got huge laughs and screams and gasps and all of that. It was like a gigantic reaction. And then as they were, like, saying... Then chaos erupted on the stage. Like, how could that happen? What do you do? Why are you doing that? So I went over and I slowly kicked the baby off stage. <laughs> Again, there was no baby on stage. It was a pretend baby. Oh, my but God. But I, like, kicked it, not big kicks, just kind of nudged it off stage.
0: You know, kicking it out of the corner of your yes, eye. just right. Get out of here. And,
2: uh, and then instead, that baby died. Uh, and then my friend, Kelly, said after the show, she goes, oh, you know, I forgot to tell you that, you know, we have a boundary about no dead babies. And, you know, her friend and her co-teacher, Stuart, is like, you were you were here. You didn't claim it's a boundary. Nothing can do. You know, yeah. it's like I would I'm not so emotionally committed to doing a dead baby thing that I would have done it no matter what. Right. She said it's a boundary. I wouldn't have done it. And, and I always tell people you really need to declare your boundaries because the improv gods are trickster gods. And if you don't declare it a boundary, it's going to come up in oh, a for scene. sure. And so it's funny to me that here's my friend Kelly who's been doing improv forever, and she's great at it and a great teacher, great performer, just didn't declare that boundary. And instead, there's a dead baby in the middle dun, of her dun, show. Dun, dun. And she's like, oh, next time I'm going to have to say no dead babies. And I was like, you know. So that's why I think that boundaries really are important when people are working together as improvisers because there aren't Like you wouldn't work that way with a scripted piece. And you know, you and and you know, I feel like a lot of wrestling you have either the basic arc of the piece set up ahead Mm -hmm. of time or you have a series of moves that you plan out, or you're saying the moves to each other while you're improv while you're having the match. But you're not actually doing stuff without telling the other person. Exactly. And but in improvisation, when you're performing on stage, if you don't have some of those boundaries in place, you are sort of free-floating in some ways. And, and you know, uh, that's what ends up happening because trickster gods are trickster gods. So that's where I've learned when I travel around the world ahead of time to say, do you have any physical, emotional, or content boundaries? Because I know that if I improvise like that and somebody gets upset, they're gone for the rest of the scene or for the rest of the night.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
2: And I don't want to spend the whole show worrying about them with each thing I do. Like, are you okay? So, if right. I say this, are you okay? Are, are you good? Are you okay? Yeah. You know, uh, so that's, why I'm like, you know, if you don't declare it a boundary, everything is then in play if it comes up. And um, so that's part of what I learned is undeclared boundaries are uh, cultural, artistic, and personal assumptions. And getting people to talk about them creates a different level of consent and trust because they've all hurt each other and it makes it so much easier to then know you know because like Jeff's a big guy and I've often had sometimes somebody say big guys say don't jump on my back I know I'm a big guy but I got a bad back or I got bad knees don't jump on it uh, I remember another big guy's like look I got a really bad foot so don't jump on me because I can't balance with it you know and so it's like interesting that a lot of people think oh big guy then I can do different things with him than I would yep. with somebody else You know, and I've had people say, I'm deaf in one ear. And I was, like, really grateful to hear that, no pun intended, because uh, (laughs) I didn't, because I was, like, you know, if they didn't say it, I'd be talking into their deaf ear during the scene going, why are they not responding? And, you know, I've had somebody else say, you know, I can't see out of this eye, uh, and so I know not to stand on that side Right, right. Or somebody's said, I've just had surgery, and so I've got, like, don't slap me on the shoulder. Yeah. Like, and it's like, those are all those kind of things. And, the th- you know, the thing that I want people to be aware about is that boundaries are not permanent. Boundaries are not walls. Boundaries can change week by week, depending upon where you are with your own set of boundaries and with your sense of trust with the other people.
0: Absolutely.
2: So something that's not okay today might be fully okay two months from now. You write down, I imagine, certain wrestling moves, you know, like yeah. what might not be okay this match six months later when you've worked together many more times is totally okay. Absolutely. You know, and I grew up in an alcoholic household, so I had a lot of walls, but no boundaries. And and uh, through improv, I learned that it's okay to play as an adult, but through therapy and recovery, I learned it's okay to live Yeah. and be alive. And so uh, uh, those are some of the, you know, some of the things that I've learned. And so it makes it so much easier and to know those things about somebody else And you work together faster because, you know, you don't have to spend three months going to movies together to try and create a group mind. You can just hear everyone's consent of what they don't want you to deal with. And you know that everything else is okay. And it's very empowering to have you say, please don't do this with me and know that everyone's heard it and isn't going to do it. You know, and uh, it's common, like uh, a lot of shows I've had black women say, don't touch my hair. You know, the only thing I say now as far as my own personal boundaries, I tell people, don't make me the old man in every scene because I'm usually the oldest person in the show, right, right. and I have predominantly gray hair. So if they're not thinking about it, they'll make me dad and granddad in every right, right. motherfucking scene. And I love playing kids, obviously, since I was the baby killer.
0: The baby smacker, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: the baby smacker. <laughs> uh, and I like playing teens. And, and if you limit me to just to that – through that ageism, it makes it not fun for me to play.
0: Absolutely. And
2: so once I say don't do that, they then become aware of it. And then then that gives me the freedom to play the whole range. Yep. So that's the biggest thing I learned traveling around the world because, you know, I would walk in with my own set of assumptions being from Chicago, being from the United States, being from a place where Chicago was the Mecca of this art form. I would have a whole series of assumptions that came from that. And I would have to let them go or remove them so i could truly connect with the people that i was working with so that's what i learned the most traveling around the world what i learned the most during COVID is that i am an extrovert by nature and an introvert by trauma
0: that man that makes that hits close to home i can relate to that
2: and you know it's that realization of like who I was up until I was about nine or 10 years old mm-hmm. was very extroverted. And then when the traumatic events happened, it changed. And that when I feel safe with people, I let my playful side out. Yeah. Because that's the closest to me. So that's right. what I protect. And so realizing that during COVID, because uh, uh, during COVID, I'm a, uh, you know, I grew up an only child, even though I have like half siblings, but I didn't grow up with them. Uh, and I've joked that being an, ol- being an only child is really good training for a global pandemic. Because you're just used to being on your own. Yep. It's the people that came from big families who were really fucked. The people that came from moderate families, you could have like their spouse and maybe a kid and they're in their bubble. But the people who came from big families, it was just torture for them. Yeah. Whereas like as an only child, I'm like, no one wants to see that movie? Great, I'm going to go. And so uh, um, in some ways, I felt like I fared during the COVID era better. But I did have that realization. I was like, oh, back when I was a kid, before those things happened, I was an extrovert. And then through protection it became introvert and so once i realized that i started giving myself permission to be more of an extrovert again more of just right. who i am and when i put it up on facebook i had some very funny people i know through the improv scene who wrote oh wow that's amazing that's so deep i now realize i'm the opposite mm-hmm. and, I, and i thought about them and how they play i'm like oh, i could totally see that you are an extrovert by trauma, but an introvert by nature. Like you're an introvert by nature, but because of your own traumas, you become an extrovert. Like, I'm going to be big and bold and I'm going to make you laugh so you can't laugh at me and it's going to be, i right. this out of here. You don't even get near me because I'm out of here. Only when you really get to know me can the people closest to me see the actual downtime, quiet part of me. Yep. And so, uh, and I bring that up because I feel like for 90% of the world, this COVID era was traumatizing. Oh yeah, I know some people that thrived in it. Those fuckers, but <laughs> most of uh, uh, the COVID era was traumatizing for people, and so, you know, uh, I feel like there's traumas that are come out of it, because I also know you can't heal a trauma while you're still being traumatized. Very true. It's like being a drowning person trying to have a perspective on drowning while you're drowning.
0: Oh. Sounds horrible, right? Whoa. Yes. So, no but fact. now
2: as we're coming out of the COVID era, moving forward to some sort of new normal, which we're not yet at, nope. but we're, you know, there's a new normal out there. We're just not there yet. But uh, there will be like a lot of trauma that will be at play culturally for years to come, if not decades to come. I, you know, I feel like when people, you, your son's age or teenagers, get to be the age that are creating TV shows and movies and music, mm-hmm. and fashion, we're going to see so many expressions of what this era was like during this COVID time yeah. period.
0: Oh, for sure. That's Man, that's crazy and scary to think about, too, because, blink, and we're going to already be there. That's that's the scarier part right there. It's right. going to be there before we know it. Right. But that's, oh, man, because, like, my son, I don't even think about it, you know, like five years old having to do virtual learning for kindergarten when you're supposed to be, like, around kids your own age. Right. Just... Getting that connection, getting that energy, like, man, I can't even imagine what that's going to come out for, like, other kids his age that get in those positions to have those expressions like that.
2: I know that some of the the theater teachers that I know that have been working with kids have been saying it's been really tough. Yeah. uh, Bringing them back into a setting because they just don't, they're struggling with connecting, they're acting out, they only want to do whatever they want to do, and, like, they get up and walk away in the middle of something because that's what they were able to do when it was all on Zoom. Yeah, at home. If I need to go to the you know, bathroom or go do something else, I will. So I've been hearing from you know, a lot of theater teachers and, oh, and arts teachers working with kids that it's really difficult, and they already see the challenges of that. Yeah. And, and the re-socialization process is Absolutely. difficult as well. So, uh, But yes, yeah, so those are the two big things I learned. That's what I learned traveling around the world, and that's what I learned not traveling around the world during COVID. I feel like that's a nice wrap up point for this. Oh, for
0: sure. And I mean, I could be wrong. You've kind of dropped some breadcrumbs too for this uh this last segment that we're going to do because you know, again talking about being vulnerable, bringing your authenticity to the table, and then even just being able to have some fun and you know, just play it out. We're going to flip the script a little bit. Yes,
1: Jeff.
2: We're going to wrestle? What?
1: Oh, wait, do we have <laughs> enough room? I have a
2: question. Oh. Yes, I yes, have an Jeff. answer. What is or, your question?
0: Jonathan has an answer? Maybe. There's a mic moving.
1: So, um, actually two things. First off, dogs don't lay eggs. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to tales from the Haunt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so my question is, and, and I could see why this wouldn't come up because he knows what to expect, but from someone that has never done an improv class coming into a new class, what could they expect, um, from stepping in the door the first time, whether it be through Zoom or actual in person, like what kind of thing would could they
2: actually expect from that? That is a great question, Jeff. Um, most of what people learn in the very beginning of improvisation is learning how to understand the philosophy of yes and, or as I like to say, accept and build. Now those are really nice, lovely words, and and in some ways lofty principles, but that doesn't answer your question of like what will people actually be doing? And usually, what people are doing in their very first class is playing some children's games. You know, like you literally played as kids, because that helps reinforce or help you remember to play like you did as a child. So it you know gives you permission to go back to that, and then they are very basic fundamental improv games because once you get back in touch with the sense of play through playing kids' games, it then makes it easier to start playing some basic improv games uh, because you're already then playing. And these improv games will be... Well, there's a woman named Viola Spolin who's like the birthplace of all modern improvisation. And she came from Chicago and she worked at the Hull House in Chicago working with immigrant children and poverty children. And uh, uh, during a period of like five years in the 30s and 40s, she invented the 200 improv games that became sort of like the table of elements of uh, building blocks for improvisation that's used all over the world now. And each one of those games had simple rules, and she would push the kids to just play the game. Don't think about it. Don't try to figure it out. Just play the game and see what happens. Now, to me, the core of her games are all about transformation. But it might be like, okay, the two of you are now playing. You're just in a coffee. You're an ice cream shop. And you are both in the same emotion of anger. Start there. And then over while you play, change your emotion. So... You know, there are games that are very game-like, that have a very strong sense of gameplay. Uh, you know, sometimes you're tossing an imaginary ball at each other, and sometimes the ball changes in size or scope or heat or cold, so you're just activating a sense of play. And the early classes all are about activating a sense of play through a variety of different games. Some physical, some mental, some emotional, but they're all games, and they all have a game structure. So uh, the early classes are super fun when you've never done it before, because you're playing and you're learning by playing, much like how we did as kids. Awesome! That that answered my question perfectly. Um, the whole
1: reason why I asked that question was because, you know. Tells from the haunt, we like to give people education into the haunt world of, especially the ones that are not involved in the haunt industry and want to be things like that. Um, And my thought process with that is, is Flynn he already knows what to expect in an improv class because he's been there, but I've never been there, so therefore you know in my mind I'm going okay, what would a first time person have to do? in an improv class he's looking at me like he's never done this thing before <laughs> so but anyway that 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 was my question it's been going through my head you know most of the whole time um so that was it okay <laughs> and and for those of you that are listening to the weird voice that haven't ever heard me before i'm just jeff
0: he
2: makes the show sound
0: pretty so thank him yeah. G- <laughs> jeff
2: is the uh, producer of this podcast
0: yes yes he is
2: producer hey. jeff Jeff. I think
0: I like that better than just Jeff. Yeah, better than we'll, just. We'll Jeff. We'll discuss that later. Yeah. But um, we're gonna have some fun now. We're gonna okay. improv it a little bit. All I'm right. gonna You know, I've been asking you questions and letting you tell your story here for gosh, I can't even keep track of how long we've been going. It's now it's a very but...
2: long podcast. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if half the people tuned out already.
0: Don't 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 put that evil on this podcast. This was an entertaining interview. Damn it! But um, what what I want to do now is something everybody is familiar with. I want to let you uh, take the reins hold court on this show and throw some questions my way and it's going to be all on the fly all improv i don't know what you're going to ask me because you literally just walked into my house two and a half hours ago this has all just been kind of happening as it comes so let's let it continue
2: all right have you ever wrestled with your wife
0: um i have put her in a hammerlock and then i have gotten an elbow in the face for it that's about as far as it's going to go
2: Well, I think that's a fair exchange. (laughs) Uh, um, Did you wrestle in high school?
0: No, uh, marching band was my entire life. What uh, did you play? Clarinet.
2: Did you wrestle the clarinet?
0: Oh, man, I wrestled my embouchure to make sure I had perfect form and pitch for the clarinet, but...
2: And with your marching band, did you guys just mainly march straight, or did you put in some of the moves that some bands do? That are more uh, dance-like.
0: There was a little bit of everything, and I, I'm saying this, and you can actually, if you go back and look at the McGavick High School like drill sets and you watch the visual performances, I don't know how we got away with this or how the Drill Rider got away with this, but my first two or three years at McGavick, we were the state champions, but the Drill Rider would always sneak penis forms into the forms on the field, and I don't know how we got away with that, how we continued to win, but this was always in the drill set, and nobody nobody said a thing about it. But you yeah, know That's would,
2: another thing you couldn't do nowadays.
0: Nope, you could not. You that could drill can be
2: fired just for coming up with that as an idea.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, it's so weird because you was know, like, oh, you're just being a pervy teenager. You're just saying that, but like, no. There it is on screen. Everybody can see it. The judges saw it. They gave the form a perfect 10, I guess good for them. But, you know, it's like in the middle of that, too, that same shape, you got people doing dance moves or whatever mellophones going up in the air, flags and rifles twirling, everything. It's a little bit of everything, but there's still a penis shape on the field. So
2: Right. So instead of big dick energy, you had big band energy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, I don't think we can top
2: that. Uh <laughs> how'd it feel to be a state champ?
0: Um, it was very good. The only thing that sucked is um our fourth year, my my senior year, we got runner up. Oh. Yeah, so like we were on the verge of uh they had done a it once. Yeah, we done a three peat uh back in the eighties. Then up until my sophomore year was a three peat, then uh junior year was a four peat, we were on the verge of a five peat, and it just didn't happen.
2: Did they blame you?
0: No, thankfully no. But I blame my friend Sarah who was also a clarinetist.
2: Sarah. And had
0: a solo and she actually took it personally. She couldn't tell I was joking. So. Oh, uh oh. Sorry, Sarah.
2: Um when did you first start wrestling?
0: Uh, actually like two months out of high school, I had been waiting. I was going to do it after I got out of college, but it was the July right after I graduated, right after I turned 18.
2: What drew you to it?
0: Um, the, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know how to describe it, but it was the athletic storytelling with the physicality and using your body. It was just, I didn't know how to articulate that, but it's like just being pulled in watching a legitimate amateur wrestler go up against a guy that was an athletic high flying wrestler and having a competitive match you knew who could legitimately win but they were telling a story where they were both competitive and it just made you want to watch the entire thing without getting up to go to the bathroom like you was just it had me hooked the entire time
2: and what did your parents think of it what was their reaction to it
0: my dad could give Two shits less. He wasn't gonna support it. Uh, he did come to my first match, and then oddly enough, I got a concussion, so <laughs> he felt justified. But my mom was always very supportive of it. Uh, even though I did kind of go behind her back, she wasn't supportive when I said I was going here to train. But then when she, you know, started seeing the training continue, and then saw the first match and continue coming to support, like she was very big and supportive on that.
2: Nice. How did you and your wife meet?
0: Uh, dating website actually. Right oh. after my, uh, it's actually about four or five, that was about six months after my previous engagement had broken off with a girl I'd known from high school that I should not have been with, should not have been involved in any way, shape, or form with. I was emotionally dead in that relationship anyway, so by the time it ended, it, it was just like, okay, cool, I'm free now, this person's out of my house, we're cool, I got to keep the dogs. And then, lo and behold, I find her again on a dating website, and she responds this time as I'm driving to a show in Kentucky. It's like, I remember it vividly. We met two days later, and then three months later, we were married.
2: Well, there you go. And uh, Despite um, everybody
0: trying to talk us out of it. so <laughs> Eight years later.
2: Eight years later. Um, how did you get involved with The Hauntings?
0: Um, I was looking at it to build my voice acting resume. It was actually... Um, just another way to try and get you know try and get some stuff on the resume, get some hopefully residual income, and just do the voices for some of the characters because you know I'd heard it every time. I didn't know if they had somebody on site that just sat in a booth and did it, if they just recorded something and had a you know a CD or a loop or something. I didn't know how it worked, so I applied, and in true voice actor fashion, I forgot that I even submitted an application. Um, got a call to come in. Lo and behold, um, a guy that I used to wrestle with his son was one of the people that made the decisions on hiring and another guy that I had wrestled with like 10 years prior was also involved. He's one of the makeup managers and it's just like, we know you applied for this, but we want you to, you know, come and be an actor physically. And then it also led to me performing outside and having the chance to do more and have less boundaries because you're getting to interact with these people all throughout the outside and the midway and, you know, you can't do the same joke or the same material when you've got thousands of people coming in. So you got to you got to change it up and thankfully that's where improv came in and sure. it helped it, you know, helped it flow and made it entertaining for people.
2: Have you ever wrestled a ghost?
0: Oh, man, I think I've gotten beat up by a ghost in my sleep so I'll say I've, lost. <laughs> I've done the job to a ghost.
2: So, separate of the haunts, have you ever experienced anything uh, paranormal?
0: Yes. Um You hear about those random cold chills that people get. And I know, like, Jeff, I think we actually. Yeah, I call that
2: my last girlfriend. (laughs) chick, Hey, hey, hey. Ah. I'm working here, people.
0: Oh, That's a good one, man. I'd hate to meet her. But, uh, you know, we actually had one during an interview where it was, like, super hot in here. And that random cold chill goes down because you said you got it too. But I remember specifically um, back when I was living with my grandmother, I would stay in her basement. And I just, I woke up one night, and there was this bright light over the bed. And I I couldn't tell if I was awake or dreaming. I couldn't move. And I tried to scream, and then the light just kind of, like, exploded and went away. Nothing ever happened after that. I don't know what it was, but...
2: Were you scared?
0: Oh, I was terrified. I was terrified. But then it's like, okay, nothing's coming back, nothing's happening. I somehow fell back asleep, but, you know, it was... It was a horrifying thing because you're in a basement. Everybody else is upstairs, and it's just like, I can't even scream. I don't know what's going to happen.
2: Did anyone else experience that at the time, or was it just? It located, was just me. It was just me.
0: Yeah, the, the animals in the house didn't even respond to it, so I don't know what it was, or if I just dreamed it. But it was enough to scare the hell out of me.
2: There you go. That's it. And um, what about you, Jeff? Have you had any paranormal experiences? Spooky dookie. <sighs>
1: Got to turn the like mic around. Trying to turn that to mic around. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, so,
1: myself, I have um, up until about six or seven years ago, I was actually an avid ghost hunter. I've still got all my equipment that I done it with. Um, so you know, that's pretty much the best I can say. I've had several. So, okay. You know, and there's there's random
0: rumors floating around that the haunted attraction we work at actually has some. Uh, some spirits there, but I have not experienced that, knock on wood. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't want to be in there after hours with no lights on, I can say that for sure. But I've,
1: I've done that. Hmm.
2: He's shaking his head no. I'm not sure if that means there's nothing there, or no, you don't want to be there when the lights are out.
0: We uh, leave that up to your interpretation.
1: I've done that once, and I'll never do it again.
2: No. Okay. All right. Terrible. All right. Man, those are some good questions. Um. Would you want to experience something else paranormal again, or was that experience enough for you?
0: Um, are we talking good paranormal or terrifying I paranormal? don't know. It's up to you. See, I'm, I'm of the impression that if something were to happen, I would end up cursed for the rest of my life, so I'm just going to say no. Okay. I'm good there.
2: And has your wife had any paranormal experiences?
0: I believe she has. Um, But again, too, it's like she's never been really descriptive about it. She said she's experienced some things, but she's never wanted to talk about it, so I've never really pushed the issue. I
2: mean, because I saw your son floating in the air in the living room, and I was like, well, this yeah. might be normal.
0: You know, there's also a dog, like, trying to jump up and get him again. That's why right? I had to step out earlier. Right, because and... the
2: dog is like, wait, that's not normal. You know, and trying to bring your son back down. But, you know, outside, and, and I thought it was really great that he had, like, eyes in the back of his head and that he glowed. But, yeah. you know, I thought maybe you guys just grew up near a nuclear power plant.
0: Well, I mean, that's... We did pass by one a couple times going to Knoxville. That could have had something to do with it. Or it could have just been payback from the spirits for him trying to fart on me earlier. You know, it
2: it could be either one. It could be either one. Uh, Let's see. So I feel like having had that paranormal experience, did that affect your sense of possibility in the universe or spiritually in the universe from a religious, uh, spiritual, or scientific standpoint?
0: Um, it definitely made me more aware of things because, you know, like there's even like the thing, the topic of aliens and extraterrestrial life. It made me way more aware of that, which in saying that too, it's funny that, you know, like there's been quote unquote UFO footage over the last two years. And now nobody cares about it because everything else is going on. Like, <laughs> right. I, I have right. to believe that there is another world out there. There are other worlds around us because we have all these science fiction novels, all these horror stories that... They have to be based on something, so there has to be some thread of credibility and all that.
2: Because what you described about your particular paranormal experience sounded not so much like a ghost or a spirit or an energy to me. It sounded more like a possibility of like a visitation from something in a fourth or fifth dimension.
0: Hmm. I'm intrigued now.
2: You know, or a momentary collision of, of parallel universes.
0: Yeah. Oh man. See, I didn't even think about that. I got goosebumps thinking about it. Wow.
2: Because. Because uh, uh, the way you described it, sound more like something like that rather than something. Yeah, it, it,
1: it sounded more like a sleep paralysis. That's the worst, though. That is the than, worst. Than an actual like paranormal experience. Okay. The fact that you couldn't move, the fact that you couldn't scream, uh, yeah, would yeah, yeah, would yeah, be yeah. like a sleep paralysis. Yeah. It's kind of like a outer out of body. Thing, you know.
0: I, I've seen *Insidious* enough to know that doesn't end well. So, <laughs> let's stick with parallel dimensions.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, okay, that's very interesting to uh, think about. That it was just uh, sleep paralysis, so it's just don't go to sleep again.
0: <sighs> but I need more sleep.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, then, y- yeah, uh, you know, it is interesting to think about like parallel universes and also like other dimensions because just like a two-dimensional paper doesn't know it's two-dimensional if it has right. any kind of consciousness it would make sense that us in a three-dimensional locked in time and space uh, uh, that we wouldn't be aware of a fourth dimensional much like a lot of fish aren't aware that they're in water that's so if true. there is a fourth or fifth dimension it would make sense that they'd be able to pop in and out of our dimension but we wouldn't be able to see or experience through theirs. Yeah. Jeff is nodding again so
1: that's, that's- that's true. I mean, I, that's, I can't argue that. So
2: yeah, that's, But of course, I am also a big believer in like certain traumatic events leave an energy behind. Oh, for sure. And yeah. uh, uh, I've, you know, my mom was like an Irish gypsy. So a lot of that was encouraged in my life growing up. And, and uh, also, uh, so I've had a fair amount of experiences with paranormal and things that are like ghosts. The, the theater where I had the Chicago and Festival office for a long time. Uh, for like, you know, 15 years was very well known to be a haunted theater. Oh. And, uh, in fact, we even knew the names of two of the people that had died there that were still haunting it. Oh, wow. Because we, we had the specificity of that. And uh, and we had ghost hunters there who came. One time we are like, yeah, there's a lot going on here. We are like, we know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they're doing a scene. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so having had those experiences, you know, I, I can sometimes tell the difference between – is this a really bad energy? Is this something like, like a leftover residual of of something bad that happened, or is this an entity, or is this like something that doesn't make sense? So it came from somewhere else. Yeah, all of those things.
0: Man, it's it's so funny you explain it that way too. As I'm watching like the first half of str- the season four of Stranger Things, that's very prevalent to what's playing right. out of that story not to yeah. spoil it for anybody but yeah. by the time you hear this you'll know what happens but i mean it's it's very true because you can even pick up on that energy like let's say even if it's not supernatural as the lights just blinked here you know like you can pick up on the energies in rooms if right it's positive yes. negative indifferent whatever it may be or you can tell or, yeah.
2: yeah yeah and i've definitely had experience with different locations as well right like, you know like uh and I kind of have a sense of my own strength in those situations. And if it's something bigger or larger than me, i just like, nope, and turn around.
0: Yep, I can respect that.
2: Because, uh, uh, you know, I, I did not come into this world to be an exorcist.
0: No, no, and that's always a—that's been a huge fear of mine as well. So there, there's my confessional. I do not want to end up like that. I've seen The Conjurings. I've seen the exorcism movies. That's enough to terrify me because that, that legitimately happens. People get exorcised— Even if they're possessed or not. So.
2: Now, why is there not a character that in wrestling that is possessed?
1: Um, there is.
2: Ah, there. Jeff says there is. Well, I I think we
0: may be thinking of the same person, but he's not on TV anymore.
1: No.
2: Uh, I mean, you have the Undertaker, who was something, but that wasn't really. He was more like a.
1: The girl from the Caverna show.
2: Oh no no no
0: no! Damn it, Jeff! No,
1: <laughs> I
0: just... no no Jeff! No no indie wrestling. I mean, you could you could always reference um the I think he's going by his real name now Wyndham, but you could reference mm-hmm. Bray Wyatt because he had a split personality where he was just like the Mister Rogers type character with very violent overtones, but then he would go and he would have this. Tom Savini made mask, looked like a monster out of a movie, would do all these sick, insane things, and he could not, like, when he's in that character, he could not be hurt. And, like, I think they even did a thing where they set him on fire, and he still, like, would wrestle in a burnt in a burnt suit, burnt right, mask. Right, right, right. when he had the mask on, he just could not be hurt. He was like a demon, basically.
2: Well, and since so many of the wrestling characters are a reflection of the hopes and fears of our culture... Yep uh just blown up big like a balloon it's gonna be interesting to see which kind of characters get created in wrestling post-covid
0: yeah i know which because, i'm still because
2: there we don't have a villain that is another you know like oh this is the people from iran that's our new villain yeah this is the russian this is you know like how are you gonna turn Absolutely. an invisible virus i am virus man
0: Oh, just, no, it's the term. Just, right. just get out and cough in somebody's face.
2: Right, like that's not <laughs> in a very exciting wrestling match.
0: Actually, I think I just found my finish for Wednesday.
2: <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> I have them, <covered. coughs> yeah. They can knock down you. Three,
0: two, one, on. you're on. Yay. It's, it's so funny, though, because um, I, I made a joke um back at the start of the pandemic that I was just waiting for some podunk indie com- uh, company to run a one-night tournament and call it the COVID Cup 2020. Because, I mean, it's the alliteration, it sells, but nobody has done it yet, and if they do, I want my residuals.
2: Well, that'd be great, especially if at the end of the COVID Cup no one can touch it. And the photo is the winner winner standing six feet away from the cup.
0: And you can't tell who the winner is because they both have masks. Right, yeah.
2: So does the ref? Everyone's wearing masks.
0: That is the winner right there. That is, oh man, that is beautiful.
2: COVID Cup twenty
0: two. <laughs> oh man, they're missing out on money for that. Watch right now, now Vince McMahon or somebody's gonna do it. I and, still want my residuals.
2: And they get shot before they go into the match. You have them see like getting a shot. Okay, he's ready
0: to go. Oh man! But then again, bold of you to assume some of those people would actually get the vaccine. I say that in jest. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Oh, these have been great questions, though. Not to not to end it on a negative note. But I have one more question. Yes, please.
2: What's your middle name? Dyron. How do you spell that?
0: D-Y-R-O-N.
2: Why? Uh,
0: <laughs> ask my father. Actually, you know what? Ask his mother and father, because they started that.
2: Oh, so it's a family name.
0: Yes, and then I passed it down to my son. It's like the only thing my dad and I actually have in common. But what's so funny is that my, my father-in-law, his name is Myron. And I've met people, and I've wrestled with people whose name is Byron, but if you put a D in front of that, because it's the name I used to wrestle under, because nobody had it, nobody could copyright it, nobody could say Dyron. They would say everything but. but they could say Myron, they could say Byron, but you'd get dearin Doran, Darren, you name it, like anything but. Is
2: Byron so an Irish name?
0: I believe so, yes. Because, as
2: you know, with your last name being Flynn, I would think that yep. with that being a family name, it sounds like an Irish name. That's what I've been Something told. Something that has so. its roots in Gaelic.
0: That's it. That is it. I mean, somebody gets it. You know, it's like you tell everybody, was like, I've never heard of that before. Where is it from? Well, you know my last name. Well, what, what's your last name?
2: Well, if you put a, uh, an adjective in front of it, it would make a lot more sense. Dangerous tyrant.
0: <sighs> See, I tried that, but somebody had dangerous trademarked. There's been like three dangerous people before me.
2: Right. Double D. Well, you can oh. find some, something that goes with that.
0: <laughs> it's just a matter of getting somebody to pronounce it right, though. That's the thing. And then... Now
1: Baron.
0: Oh, sh- leave Terry out of this, Jeff. <laughs> um, but it's funny enough because, you know, obviously my first name is Chris, and a uh, previous guest on this show, um, Morgan Berry, you know, she's like, well, you know, these companies that you work for, they're a lot of Chris's. And I've, I'm no stranger to that in my everyday life. Room I was in this morning, three other Chris's. Office I was at, four other Chris's. You know, it's just like, go by, you know, just start using your last name. Be unique because nobody goes by Flynn. Or, that's you know, true. I'd, I'd say Dyeron, but then the same thing came up. Well, sure. would somebody, could they say that? Would they make a diarrhea joke? Like, well, probably. Yeah, that, that's happened in high school, so chances are it'll happen again. But, yeah, nobody, just nobody, no matter how many times you tell them, you tell them how to pronounce it. Nobody could say it. Is it Diron What?
2: Yeah, but if it was a Star Trek character, fucking everybody would know how to say oh, it. Oh, for sure. Mr. Sulu? Like, or... They'd be like, yeah, Star Trek, Star Wars, one of those things. If it was that type of character, everyone would be like, oh, that's not how Diron's played.
0: Now, if they want to cast me by that name in said Star Wars movie, I am all, all but available, so please let me know. Oh, man. Great questions. This has been this has flown by. I don't feel like this has been over two hours at this point. Has it really been that long, Jeff?
2: Jeff's like, yes, it's been that long. I've been sitting live. here. Man, we might I for that I one. have to go to the bathroom. Says Jeff. I I can't. It's two hours. Is like, dude.
0: And I think the best part of it was we didn't really come in here with a plan, and the we conversation, improvised
2: this conversation.
0: That's it. So, of course, too. Give she,
2: and take, back and forth. Yes, and. Listen and respond, yes, and.
0: Oh, man. And see, that's that's the perfect thing right there, too. If you're looking to figure out how to you know get into improv, or you want to take it and become a better actor, or in my case, too, like just mellow out in your everyday life. Take improv. Watch for what this guy's doing, because his classes will help you. So, by all means, sign up and take them, and tell him you heard him on this podcast.
2: Well, thank so. you. Thank you. And remember... Uh, uh, to use the power of improvisation carefully. Like, if the police pull you over, don't yes and them. Just answer their questions.
0: <laughs> uh, wise words again. That. That's like the sixth or seventh life lesson. Because
2: they be like, yeah, uh, do we got a problem? Yes, we do. And, and I think I'm the one who's going to fix it. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah.
0: I've got these donuts
1: that you don't have. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Please you take know them. Why I pulled you over. Yes, yes, I, yes, I, I did. And you don't know that I've got a load of gun on it. Right, so it's like,
2: don't say yes and when the police pull you over. Just answer the question, keep it there. Like, that's, you know, there are some places where yes and doesn't work in real life because real life has consequences in a way that improv life doesn't because you're just making it up and you're playing a game of pretend. But But in some situations, it really does work to say yes and or to at least just say yes.
0: Absolutely. Have that give and take, too. Yeah. Have the give and take. Yes, Jeff?
2: Now that I've heard this
1: conversation, I know I have been yes and a
0: lot by you. <laughs> I'm, trying, just to not, I'm yeah. trying to not hog the conversation, Jeff. I want you You're involved.
2: You're like, that's what he's been doing. Now it makes sense. I'm
1: just a boring person. And as
0: as you referenced earlier, there's that light bulb moment that you, right that you yep. want to see people have.
2: So even here, just today, Jeff had a light bulb moment, and not just because he's connected to hauntings.
0: Absolutely. How many haunters does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just Jeff.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's your payback for all those jokes you give me, Jeff. I'm I win
1: tonight. Fair enough.
0: Okay, I think that's our cue to take this one home because I want to go out with a win. And I also want to go out thanking our guest today, Jonathan Pitts, for not only stopping by and coming in studio, which was great to finally meet my coach in person, but I also want to take the time again to wish each and every single one of you a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holiday, and we'll be back next week, but I'm going to go ahead and wish you a safe and Happy New Year as well. So check back next week for another awesome episode, and we're going to wrap up 2022 with a bang. And I know you hear me. I Know You Hear Me podcast is a presentation of Flynn Hendricks Enterprises. We thank you for tuning in this week and we hope you'll check out our sponsors and advertisers. Make sure you check us out next week as we come back at the same time with another awesome episode.